0: 20 years after the first bombs dropped on Baghdad, the U.S. Senate is set to repeal the authorization for the Iraq War, which toppled Saddam Hussein. Coming up, why there's bipartisan support for the move and what it says about U.S. support for Iraq. Today is Thursday, March 23rd, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a 1,000 people have now been charged in relation to the attack on the U.S. Capitol, January 6, 2021. NPR's investigation teams have been tracking each of these cases from arrest to prosecution. The people of India have been captivated by a
1: manhunt for a charismatic separatist leader. This has been like a multi-day car chase. Like, think of O.J. Simpson times 10. Also, more
0: than a quarter of the MBTA subway system is under speed restrictions, and t leaders say it's going to take a lot more repair work before the trains
2: run on time. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The CEO of video sharing app TikTok faced a fierce grilling in Congress as lawmakers from both parties on the House Energy and Commerce Committee questioned the company's ties to China and claimed the app has a harmful effect on children. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, Shou Chen claims there's a buffer in place to protect Americans'
3: data. Shou Chu said that There is a firewall in place, a firewall that is getting stronger under a plan that they are now unfolding that would prevent their employees in Beijing from having any access to user data or influencing what Americans see. And it would prevent the Chinese Communist Party from ever accessing U.S. user data.
2: And here's Bobby Allen. The federal government and several states have banned the use of TikTok on government devices. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is publicly defending his grand jury inquiry into former President Donald Trump's against suggestions by Republicans in Congress that is politically motivated. And Piers Ilya Meritz has more.
4: In a letter to District Attorney Bragg. House Judiciary Chairman Representative Jim Jordan accused the DA of an unprecedented abuse of prosecutorial authority. He demanded documents relating to the investigation of Trump, which may result in the former president being indicted. In his response letter, Bragg says complying with Jordan's document request could harm an active investigation and would infringe on New York's sovereignty as a state. Instead, Bragg suggests a meeting with the House Judiciary Committee to help him determine whether Congress has any legitimate legislative purpose in probing his investigation of Trump. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. The House Foreign Affairs
2: Committee chairman is threatening to issue a subpoena for a State Department document about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports Secretary of State Antony Blinken is facing some tough
5: questions about that. Republican Michael McCall says Americans should be able to see some of the concerns embassy officials were raising as the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. And he's telling Secretary Blinken that he will subpoena for that so-called dissent cable if necessary. Blinken says this is supposed to be a confidential channel for State Department employees to express dissent.
6: It is vital to me that we preserve the integrity of that process and of that channel, that we not take any steps that could have a chilling effect on the willingness of others to come forward in the future.
5: He says he's considering ways to share the substance of the cable to the committee. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. On Wall Street, a
2: volatile trading session today as stocks moved from positive to negative territory, ending in the positive. Dow up 73 points, the Nasdaq up 117, the S&P 500 up 11. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts legislature has sent a $389 million supplemental budget to Governor Maura Healy's desk for her signature. The compromise bill from the House and Senate sets aside $65 million to fund the state's universal school meals program through the end of the next school year. It also dedicates millions to the state's shelter system and temporarily extends some expended benefits to participants of SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. More than a quarter of the T subway system is required to travel more slowly than usual, and T leaders say the slow zones are going to be in place for the foreseeable future. MBTA's interim general manager Jeff Gonneville told the T's board of directors today that track repairs are needed before restrictions will be lifted, and he has no estimate for when that'll happen.
7: This is something that we're obviously fully recognize our our our, the, our customers' frustration, um, but the safety of the system is our highest priority, and right now we are taking a very conservative approach with this to ensure that that safety.
0: He says the work will require more weekend and weekday evening shutdowns on parts of the system. As of today, riders can access a new uh, interactive dashboard to see exactly where the slowdowns are. Town officials in Air say nobody was hurt when a freight train derailed there today. It happened just before noon near Scully Road. Officials say five rail cars carrying trash and recycling materials are derailed. The Air Fire Department says none of the cars contain hazardous materials. People are being asked to avoid the area if possible. And the City of Boston wants permission to add 250 liquor licenses. The City Council passed the Home Rule petition yesterday. It would add 50 licenses a year over the next five years to specific neighborhoods, including Roxbury, Mattapan and Hyde Park. City Councilor and Co-Sponsor Brian Worrell says it's about equity.
8: We are working within the guardrails of an antiquated system that has systemically uh, limited black and brown communities to accumulate assets and wealth, and this is why this rule petition is so crucial, as it will start providing the tools our black and brown restaurant owners need to create vibrant business districts and neighborhoods that have been left out for far too long.
0: Mayor Wu's office says she intends to sign the measure. It would also need approval from both chambers of the state legislature and the governor before it could go into effect. May need the umbrella out there this afternoon through early tonight. Hang on to it tightly because winds could reach 20 miles an hour. Overnight lows about 43. Tomorrow should rise to about 52. Sunshine and clouds both tomorrow. Should be a dry day.
9: And right now in the Boston area, 60 degrees at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This month saw a new milestone in the effort to prosecute the people who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January sixth, 2021. More than 1,000 people have now been charged in one of the largest criminal probes in U.S. history. And NPR's investigations team has been tracking every one of those cases. We've got Meg Anderson from the team here to tell us more. Hi, Meg. Hey, Elsa. Hey. So can you just give us more of a sense of the kind of work that has been involved for the Justice Department to bring these 1,000 plus charges? Yeah. I mean, to put
12: it briefly, it's been a ton of work. Across the country, every U.S. attorney's office and every FBI field office has been involved. For the past two years, they've been reviewing literally millions of pieces of evidence, including police body camera footage, surveillance footage from the building, and all of the many photos and videos that were posted to social media and on people's cell phones. At one point, the FBI said that if you watched all the footage back to back without taking any breaks, it would take almost an entire year to get through it. Wow. And I should say we're likely not even halfway done. The Justice Department has said it thinks around 2,000 people were involved in the attack.
11: Oh, So we're just barely halfway. Okay. so how are these cases so far being resolved? Like what kinds of different outcomes are you seeing?
12: Yeah, so around 75 people have gone to trial, but most people have not gone that route. About half of the defendants have pleaded guilty. And so far, nearly 450 people have been sentenced. Mostly those are the people who entered plea deals. And the consequences at sentencing have varied Widely, A little more than half of those people have gotten some jail time, and that's ranged from seven days to 10 years. Hmm. But on the whole, in about two thirds of the cases, we found that the judges are actually giving less prison time than what prosecutors asked for. Now, nearly all of these cases have been heard in a single federal district in D.C., and the judges there have been appointed by presidents from both parties, from Reagan all the way up to Biden.
11: These judges that you say are giving less prison time in general than prosecutors are asking for, I mean, when they're handing down these sentences, what kinds of things are they saying to the defendants?
12: Obviously, it varies. Every case is different, sure. but there are themes in what they've been saying, uh, for one, the judges aren't looking at these crimes in isolation. It's not you know, just that someone walked through the Capitol and they weren't supposed to. The significance of January 6th as an attempt to undermine the peaceful transition of power is playing a part. Judge John Bates told one man that he was, quote, an active participant in a mob assault on our core democratic values. And speaking of that mob, you know, they also emphasize that being swept up in it is not an excuse. Judge Amy Berman Jackson told one defendant that, quote, no one was swept away to the Capitol. No one was carried. The rioters were adults. And another thing I've noticed is that they do seem to take into account whether or not someone shows remorse. And that seems to be in part because the judges do seem to worry that this type of thing could happen again. Judge Reggie Walton told a defendant that if people get the impression that there's no real consequence for this, they'll say, why not do it again?
11: Well, what actions is the government taking now to prevent a repeat of what we saw on January 6th? I spoke to John
12: Lewis about this. He's a researcher at George Washington University, and he said that looking at who's responsible for getting all those people to the Capitol in the first place is really important.
7: I think a lot of it
13: now does come down to the special counsel and to DOJ more broadly to recognize that if you're just gonna keep arresting the 925th guy who just walked into the Capitol, took some photos and walked out, it risks missing the forest for the trees
12: And the government has been working toward that accountability. Late last year, the House committee issued its final report, which concluded that President Trump was responsible and recommended him for prosecution.
11: That is NPR's Meg Anderson. Thank you, Meg. Thanks. Anger in
10: France has only grown since President Emmanuel Macron forced through his pension reform plan. That was on Monday. Today saw another nationwide round of strikes and demonstrations. What you're hearing there is a protest in Paris this afternoon. And joining us from Paris is reporter Lisa Bryant. And Lisa, tell me more about what happened in Paris and I guess across France today.
14: Well, this was the ninth major nationwide strike and protest. There were big demonstrations in the French capital and dozens of others elsewhere in the country. People I talked to hope they can keep up the momentum to force President Macron to repeal his unpopular pension reform. They were brandishing signs saying things like non-Macron and macron scornful of the republic and many people don't buy macron's argument that the system is going broke i spoke to jean-françois Villain at the paris protest he was there even though he's retired let's listen i don't believe it most people don't he says there's lots of money in france but it's not in the hands of working people the strikes are disrupting transportation, schools, and oil refineries. Gas stations are running dry. Garbage is still rotting on Paris streets. Collectors are on rolling strikes. And like many protests, there's been some violence and clashes with police.
10: Yeah, I've been monitoring the pictures out of Paris, and it's just trash bags everywhere you look, it seems. Um, take us back to the beginning of this week. I mentioned um, that he Macron forced this through on Monday. What he wants to do is raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 but he didn't have the votes in parliament so so how did he do this
14: so his government used a constitutional article, 49.3, to push the reform through anyway, without a lower house vote. And many lawmakers and many French were furious. Earlier this week, Macron's government narrowly survived a no confidence vote. Yesterday, Macron was on national TV defending his reform, but he doesn't seem to have convinced many French. In fact, the poll out today finds more than 60% of people think his remarks will only inflame things.
10: So he doesn't have public opinion on his side.
14: Where do things go from here? Where does France go from here? That's a really good question. Nobody really knows. Macron wants his reform to become law by the end of the year. The opposition wants to block it by any way possible, from appealing to the Constitutional Council, that's France's highest constitutional authority, to holding a referendum, to mass protests. These are really uncertain and rocky days in France.
10: Well, thank you for getting us up to speed on what is happening there. Reporter Lisa Bryant in Paris. Thanks.
11: Thanks. Nearly 20 years after the first bombs dropped on Baghdad, the Senate is on track to repeal the authorization for the use of military force that was used to justify the war in Iraq. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer earlier today.
6: Passing this AUMF is a necessary step for putting these bitter conflicts squarely behind us.
11: And PR political correspondent Susan Davis is covering this debate and joins us from Capitol Hill. Hey, Sue. Hey, Elsa. So let me say U.S. combat operations against Iraq officially ended in 2011 under President Obama, right? Like, what took Congress so long to take this step to formally end the war?
15: Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, he's a Democrat. He's been working on this repeal effort for years with Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana. And he said, essentially, there was disinterest from the Obama administration and outright opposition to it from the Trump administration to repeal the AUMF. But President Biden has indicated he supports it and he'll sign it if it reaches his desk. It has a supermajority of support in the Senate. So the political stars have finally aligned behind it. Hmm. I should note this legislation also appeals, the 1991 AUMF that authorized the Gulf War under former President George H.W. Bush.
11: (laughs) Um,
15: And I think it's important to understand that this action would have no impact on any ongoing military operations. It's a bit of a philosophical debate here. Congress is making a move to claw back its traditional constitutional war power authorities, which is a power that has sort of slowly shifted towards the executive branch over the past several decades, and especially in the post 9-11 era.
11: Well, on that note, I mean, isn't there another military force authorization that's still on the books. This one became law after September 11th, 2001, and it's been used by U.S. presidents to justify counterterrorism operations in, like, multiple countries. Is there any consideration in Congress to re-examine that authority?
15: In this debate, there have been two amendments about the 2001 AMF to try and get at this question, but both were rejected. Rand Paul, a Republican from Kentucky, introduced an amendment that would sunset the 2001 AMF in six months that would give Congress time. to sort of debate whether they wanted to update it or rewrite it. 90, or excuse me, 86 senators voted against that. Mm. Another amendment by Republican Utah Senator Mike Lee would require all AUMFs to expire every two years so every new Congress would have to decide to whether they wanted to continue those war powers, also rejected by 76 senators. I think the bottom line I draw from that is, you know, that the Senate is still overwhelmingly comfortable with keeping that authority in place, not just for this president, but for any president.
11: Right. You mentioned the debate is largely philosophical. I'm curious, was there any reflection or regret among lawmakers about the impact the war in Iraq had on this country?
15: You know, so Somewhat, but it, it has been striking to me that the tone of the debate has been very forward-looking and almost sort of positive. You know, Kane made the point that Iraq is no longer an adversary to the U.S. They are now, in his words, a strategic partner.
13: When the fighting is done and it's declared over, we can find paths forward to friendship and diplomacy and commerce and trade, cultural exchange, and that's a good thing about our country.
15: But Elsa, at the literal costs of the Iraq War and all of the post-9-11 wars in Afghanistan and beyond have been really staggering, especially if you put it in the context of the debate we're having today about the debt and the deficit. Uh, Brown University runs something called the Cost of War Project, and they estimate 20 years of wars has cost about $8 trillion. About a quarter of that is Iraq alone. Um, Practically all of the spending was off book. It wasn't paid for by Congress. So a significant chunk of the $32 trillion debt we have today is those military and war costs.
11: That is NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Thank you so much, Sue.
15: You're welcome.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes, there's a popular preacher and separatist leader on the run in India in the Manhunt Forum has caused people to turn out in some violent protests. That story still to come, and also at about 4.50 today, a new wave of Arab musicians are gaining global tractions. We're funded by you,
16: our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. Salemstate.edu graduate.
0: It was a rollicking day of trading on Wall Street and the end stocks closed higher. The Dow picked up about a quarter of a percent. The S&P rose three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained about one percent. Details on Marketplace at 6.30. Gamblers in Massachusetts have fewer traditional options at the state's three casinos than they did prior to the pandemic. There used to be nearly 5,900 slot machines at Encore Boston Harbor, Plainbridge Park Casino, and MGM Springfield. That number has dropped by about 1,000. It's not just fewer slots. There are also now 58 fewer poker tables, 12 fewer table games. Massachusetts Gaming Commission released the data today. Sports betting became legal in the state this year, so casinos are using some of that space for sports betting kiosks. A Gaming Commission official says the pandemic caused a reset and market conditions for gambling have changed. It's 420.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com NSBE.
0: Still pretty mild out there, 60 degrees now, should have some showers this afternoon through early tonight, and lots of winds overnight tonight as well, lows about 43 degrees. And for tomorrow, partly sunny skies rising to about 52. 60 degrees now in Boston.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research more at alignprobiotics.com.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today is the first day of
10: Ramadan. Normally, it's a festive holiday, but for millions of people in southern Turkey and Syria, it will be bittersweet. They're still struggling following last month's earthquakes. More than 50,000 people died Hundreds of thousands of homes were destroyed, thousands of people scattered in tent camps or other temporary housing. We're joined now by NPR's Fatma Tanis, who is in Gaziantep in southern Turkey. Hey, Fatma. Hi, Mary Louise. So I want to hear a little more about just what it looks like in these towns and cities that I know so many people fled after the earthquake in early February. Have they started coming back, started coming home?
18: They have. Um, It's been slow. Yesterday, for the first time, I saw people on the streets, they were getting their Ramadan shopping done and their last midday coffee fix in, since they won't be eating or drinking during the daytime for the next month. Uh, but many still aren't able to go back to their homes. Even here in Gaziantep, where there's been less damage than other cities, a lot of people are still in tents. Um, today, we felt four aftershocks here, and I was actually at a tent camp during one of those. And it was a chilling reminder of how traumatized people are here. You know, children started crying, people were flying out of their tents, you know, asking each other, Did you feel it? Is it over? Um, one of them was Esma Tezjan, who was comforting her younger brother. Um, here she is. <laughs> She says they are having a really hard time because that earthquake back in February was so violent, um, and they're still very afraid.
10: I can imagine. I, I just uh, the you know to feel an aftershock and not wonder and wonder is this another big one or what is it? Um, when you ask people about Ramadan and whether they will be celebrating it, observing it, what is even the right word to use this year?
18: Well, they are observing it, but it will be much more subdued. And you can, you know, tell by just being here, there are none of the usual decorations and lights. Um, you know, at least 1400 mosques in the region have been damaged or destroyed. So prayers are being held in small tents outside, even restaurants aren't doing their special, if- uh, special Ramadan menus here. Um, but local officials are trying to work to sort of lift people's spirits at the tent camp I went to. Um, I spoke to one guy who was Organizing toys for children at a stall. Uh, his name is Zafar Yilmaz. He says, you know, there will be cinemas and theater shows for kids, as well as suites and music concerts to distract people from the psychological stress uh, and depression that they are in right now.
10: I know another stop that you made today, Fatma, was at a community iftar. This is where people break their daily fast with what usually would be a large meal. Just take us there. Tell me what it was like.
18: It was really crowded, there were really long lines, Um, and you know the Iftar tent is a traditional event that happens every year so that people in need can get food as well, Uh, but this year I heard from a lot of people that they came out because they're still you know, grieving loved ones who died in the earthquake or they can't cook at home because of damage, Um, and they're seeking the comfort of being outside um, and breaking their fast with the community. And just briefly, what kind of help,
10: what kind of aid will earthquake survivors be getting?
18: A big part of Ramadan is, of course, about charity work. And, and people say this Ramadan is going to be much more about helping out than any of the other traditions. Uh, local officials, aid groups, restaurants are passing out food, so people don't have to worry about that. Um, and regular citizens are helping out as well. I, I spoke with one 75-year-old woman who was you know, carrying bags so full she could barely lift them. She was walking from tent to tent, passing out dates. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said she would be doing this, this all month. But there's just so many people who who need help that there's some are concerned about fatigue
10: yeah NPR's Fatma reporting in southern Turkey thank you
11: thank you for decades American planners have cut neighborhoods in half and now Richmond Virginia is exploring possible plans for a park to reconnect its most famous black neighborhood Jad Khalil from vpm news reports
13: a park gazebo in the Jackson Ward neighborhood is walking distance to history America's first black bank was chartered here, an insurance company, too. Doug Wilder, America's first elected black governor, went to school here. But Cliff Chambliss and about 30 others weren't going to see those sites.
19: Uh, so the, the goal for today, though, is a, is a prayer vigil.
13: It's fall, but it's still warm enough for cicadas to buzz. They eventually get drowned out by Interstate 95.
7: Homes were demolished, families were displaced, communities were broken up, businesses destroyed. And this is the cause.
13: In the 1950s, a highway split the neighborhood in half. Now, with a new grant from the U.S. Department of Transportation, Richmond is studying how a park built over the interstate could stitch together with the neighborhood. Maritza Peachin is Richmond's deputy director for Equitable Development.
20: So one of the things that I have come to learn when I'm working in Jackson Ward or other communities that have had, like, pretty traumatic history is constantly talking about the history.
13: Step by step, residents built. Rosa Bowser developed night classes. Oliver Hill and civil rights lawyers built their practices. It was a wealthy community with everything they needed. Then the interstate destroyed a significant piece of it.
20: If you don't talk about the history, people assume that you don't know it or that you are kind of skirting it to the side.
13: Jackson Ward is still a centerpiece for Black entrepreneurship and culture. Successes, despite that destruction, haven't been evenly distributed, though. Today, there's twice as much unemployment north of the freeway, and incomes are a third of those south of it. So Pigeon says community skepticism of government investments is valid.
20: Because in the past, those investments have led
21: to them being displaced.
13: Enrichment. 7,000 people were forced out. Kia Player's family was in 1957.
21: And then these are the four girls in front of the steps at uh, 904 Turpin Street.
13: Player has a photo of the little girls on their mother's lap. They're the first of her great-grandparents' 13 children.
21: After church, you know, everyone would come over from church and eat dinner. My grandmother sold fried chicken and butter rolls.
13: Player said the family's compensation wasn't even half of the house's value. Today, homes in Jackson Ward are rising in value fast.
21: It's not just about the land that was lost, but the communities that were broken up. There's no way to, like, give that back.
13: Experts say transit funding needs to be backed up with money for affordable housing. Catherine Howell is a professor of urban planning at Virginia Commonwealth University.
22: We
20: know from decades of research, frankly, uh, that transit projects uh, really tend to facilitate gentrification. Park projects
5: facilitate gentrification.
13: At the March last fall, Janice Allen discussed another concern. She's the president of the historic Jackson Ward Neighborhood Association and said reconnecting doesn't equal repair for lost wealth and scattered communities.
2: So if we're going to make amends, it has to go a little bit further than just, quote, reconnecting Jackson. Thank you. All right. (laughs) Thank you.
13: 45 communities were awarded $185 million. Buffalo got money to start construction on an interstate cap, and Kalamazoo's grant is to build more walkable streets. Richmond's money is for more planning. In Jackson Ward, that means continuing to talk to his residents and those who were displaced. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Richmond.
0: This
10: is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Funeral directors in 15 states can now offer water cremation. That story is coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. Spring showers over the next several hours, lows about 43 degrees overnight tonight, and for tomorrow should be partly sunny. Windy once again. Highs about 52 degrees. Should be a dry day. And then for the weekend, Saturday should be cloudy. Some sunshine, though, on Sunday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 60 degrees at 430.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com.
5: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Let's change. An independent investigation of the Silicon Valley Bank failure, more oversight of mid sized banks, and to replace the head of the Federal Reserve. Now the Fed has raised interest rates again. Elizabeth Warren joins us. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR.
6: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden marked the 13-year thir- anniversary of the Affordable Care Act today, saying the landmark health care law, also known as Obamacare, was monumental in covering those who couldn't get health care coverage at the time. Biden also says his budget proposal will continue to raise the bar.
23: My budget continues to build on the progress we made in the Affordable Care Act. We value seniors, hardworking Americans who have busted their necks their whole lives. My budget lifts the burden on those folks so that at the end of the month, they have just a little bit of breathing room, just a little bit of breathing room.
6: More than 40 million people have signed up for health insurance since the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Republicans have tried to kill the law but backed away from that position during last year's midterms. Doctors Without Borders says medical services have been severely disrupted in Russian-occupied areas of southern and eastern Ukraine due in large part to the destruction of medical facilities by Russian forces. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has more on the report.
24: Despite making requests
5: to work on both sides of the war's front line, humanitarian organization Doctors Without Borders says their teams have only been able to operate in areas once they come back under Ukrainian control. Christopher Stokes is the emergency coordinator for Doctors Without Borders in Ukraine. He says they found deplorable conditions where civilians were at the whim of Russian forces.
4: You've had people even restricted to their own streets. They weren't allowed to move for months and they ran out of medical supplies. Other units really seemed to have looted health care centers.
5: Worst of all, he says, the Russians sometimes placed mines in healthcare care facilities as they were leaving. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Drush Kivka,
6: Ukraine. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 75 points. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Slow zones on portions of the MBTA subway lines will remain in place for now. The head of the T said today the speed restrictions help guarantee safe conditions as workers continue to inspect tracks for defects. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports. About a quarter of the subway system is under speed
25: restrictions. Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville told the authorities, board of directors, the number of slow zones will change frequently as track wear and tear is repaired.
7: The speed restrictions themselves may go up and they may go down on a daily basis. And in some instances, in, in some areas, we have larger block restrictions or a larger restriction that is in place.
25: Gonneville says slowdowns will be lifted or shortened as corrective action is taken. The T just went live with a new online dashboard to alert riders on the current slowdowns. For 90.9
0: WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Incidents of anti-Semitism are on the rise in Massachusetts. The Anti-Defamation League released an annual audit today. It shows a 41% increase in anti-Semitic acts in the state between 2021 and 2022. Peggy Shuker is interim regional director of the ADL and says anti-Semitism has gone mainstream. She points to remarks made by Yee, the artist formerly known as Kanye West.
2: In Massachusetts, we've had examples of signs reading "Ye was right, Or even school children who maybe don't even understand what those words mean, repeating them, which is the power of celebrity. He has more followers than there are Jews in in the world.
0: She says Massachusetts had the sixth highest number of anti-Semitic incidents in the country in 2022. And a search is underway for a rifle that was stolen from a state police cruiser. It happened last night while the vehicle was parked in the garage of a Malden residential complex. State police say the gun was secured in a mount inside the locked cruiser at the time. The department says there's no indication the rifle has been used since it was stolen. It's 434.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. There's another sign of spring, light. Today is the first 7
0: p.m. sunset of the year as the days are getting longer. Unfortunately, the weather shouldn't give us a good look tonight, but it's still good to know what's happening on the other side of the clouds. And we will have a lot of clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures about 43. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds both rising to about 52. 60 degrees now in Boston.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the ECMC Foundation at
10: ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Between the car chase, the
26: manhunt, the government shutting down internet access, what's been happening in India this week sounds like the plot of a Bollywood thriller. But it is a real-life drama involving a separatist leader who is on the run. NPR's India correspondent Lauren Freyer joins us
1: now from Mumbai. Hi. Hi, Juana. So, Lauren, who is the separatist leader? His name is Amritpal Singh. He's 30 years old from Punjab in northern India, and not a lot is actually known about him personally, which sort of fuels this aura of mystery and intrigue. He is a follower of the Sikh faith, that's a minority religion in Hindu-majority India, about 2%, a little bit less of of Indians are uh, followers of the Sikh faith. So he does wear a yellow or sometimes navy blue turban and these long, white, flowing robes. He carries a kirpan, which is a traditional Sikh sword or dagger. But he's actually on the run. And so people are calling into TV channels saying they spotted him in disguise This has been like a multi-day car chase. Like, think of O.J. Simpson times 10. Here's what it sounds like on Indian TV these days.
20: Breaking news coming in, chilling details of how Amritpal escaped. Amritpal's Mercedes broke through barricades.
1: The TV channels are showing wall-to-wall footage of his Mercedes bursting through police barricades or grainy footage of him maybe at a toll booth, he was spotted on a motorbike, like snatched someone's cell phone as he was passing by to escape, into a Sikh temple, like all of this is unverified. But what we do know, he worked as a truck driver in Dubai, returned to India last year, and has garnered this massive following as a Sikh preacher. He's been involved in anti-drug campaigns, social issues, farmer protests in his region. Okay, wow. So why is he wanted then? Yeah, so he's most famous as a leader of a group that's been agitating for an independent Sikh homeland, like a new country called Khalistan. And that is something that the Indian government considers treason, and it has outlawed the Khalistan movement. Okay, so I mean, I guess that's why he makes the Indian government nervous then? Totally. And in India, there is a long history of cracking down on Sikh separatists. In the 1980s, there was this insurgency. And anybody who's old enough to remember these extraordinary scenes of gunmen holed up in the Golden Temple, that is like the holiest site in the Sikh religion. In 1984, the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi sent the army in, and there was fighting, there was damage to the temple, hundreds, thousands of people were killed. And that is a trauma that is seared in the memory of Sikhs in India and around the world. And actually, months later, Indira Gandhi was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards. So there is history here. Okay, and this time, how has the Indian government responded? Harshly. Um, The government has deployed thousands of paramilitary troops to Punjab, arrested more than 150 people, including Singh's relatives, seized guns and ammunition, And they've suspended 4G cell phone service for literally tens of millions of people across huge swaths of northern India. That's a tactic the Indian government uses to quell protests. But actually, protests are spreading. We've seen rallies in the U.S., in Canada, in Britain. Khalistan activists tore down a flag at the Indian embassy in London, raised their own banner, broke windows there. We saw similar violence at the Indian consulate in San Francisco. Okay, so Lauren, I mean, how does this end, do you think? Possibly with Amrit Pal Singh's arrest, but you know, that could send his supporters into the streets in even greater numbers. Indians are speculating, do police have him in custody already, but aren't revealing that because they want to gauge tensions? One thing is certain, this has brought back bad memories for the Sikh community here. And it's straining unity in a very diverse country that's seen sectarian riots and testing the restraint of the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, which has a reputation for cracking down on minorities. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer in Mumbai. Thank you. You're welcome.
10: As climate change rages, options for handling the deceased are changing. To reduce the carbon footprint of traditional cremation, there is a technology that uses water instead of fire. From member station KUNC,
19: Alex Hager reports. Carlotta Striffler isn't scared to talk about death, even her own.
27: I think what I would have really liked if it had been years ago, it would have been to be taken up on a mountaintop and put on top of a a, Uh, platform and just kind of go back to the elements that way, but they don't let you do that anymore.
19: (laughs) When she was a kid, Striffler's dad was a minister, so she spent a lot of time around funerals. Now that she's 73, she says that makes it easier to talk about what should happen after she's gone.
27: I'm a Virgo, and so I like to plan things, and I feel much less anxious about dying eventually, knowing that I have this in place.
19: By this, Striffler means plans for a new form of cremation. We're standing in front of the machine that will someday break down her body using water.
27: I was in a fire years ago, and I've never wanted a regular burial, but I thought I'm going to have to go with the regular cremation.
19: But when she learned about water cremation, she says it sounded more soothing. She also likes that it has about one-tenth of the carbon footprint of traditional cremation. Experts say there are virtually no emissions into the atmosphere, and the lower temperature uses less energy.
27: I guess it's just part of who I am, trying to to kind of save our Earth a little bit.
19: Chris Goes, the owner of this funeral home, explains why he bought the machine. Progress. It was just natural to me that
23: we need to just grow and grow beyond what's the same old same old
19: and that's resonating with people planning funerals
23: first man who we looked after in this equipment he wanted to be first and his family was just so pleased that they had an opportunity to take care of the environment honor dad and let him be first yet again he was quite the competitor
19: The machine itself is a shiny silver tube about the length of a small car, and standing taller than everyone in the room, it's topped with valves and gauges and pipes. Space age has
23: been brought up from people who have witnessed this. The the equipment looks rather uh,
19: futuristic. Goes and a colleague open the machine, unsealing a circular metal door that looks like the outside of a bank vault.
28: One, two, three...
19: Inside, there's a metal cage where overhead sprinklers rain water and potassium hydroxide down over the person's body, then it's tipped to an angle.
23: So there's water filling in in the lower end as it's up and then just bathes the person
19: and reduces our body to our bones. The process is called alkaline hydrolysis, and it's not cheap. At Goh's funeral home, the water-based option is $3,200, a thousand more than the old way. Nationwide, it's growing in popularity, but still not very common. Of all cremations in 2021, fewer than 1% were water cremation. It's a trend Carlotta Striffler will be happy to join, even standing in the same room as the machine that will reduce her to remains.
27: Yeah, it, I, it isn't a frightening-looking piece of equipment to me.
19: And by the time she's going in the machine, Striffler says she won't be looking at it anyway. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager in Fort Collins, Colorado.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As arguments continue to flare across the country about what is best for kids in schools, one community is trying to turn the heat down. Rockingham County, Virginia, is in the Shenandoah Valley, and they're working to bring those who disagree about public education and transgender students to the same table and possibly the same page. From member station WMRA in Harrisonburg, Randy B. Hagee reports. School board meetings in Rockingham
29: County used to erupt in screaming matches over pandemic restrictions, how racial history is taught, and how to treat transgender students.
16: If God exists,
29: God...
17: Stop with the socialist brainwashing of my children and put God back in schools. Thank you.
29: The yelling and screaming caused district leaders to hire a professional peace builder. That person is Catherine Barnes. Her job is to facilitate civil public discourse.
2: How do we hold on to that which is precious about values and traditions in Rockingham while at the same time adapting and growing in response to 21st century developments?
29: Barnes sets a calm tone as 80 people look on. They sit at round tables in a meeting room at a small local college. All of them came with various political viewpoints and religious values.
2: You'll notice also that there have been some communication agreements on your table. And they're intended The as group ways
29: is about to respond to prompted discussion questions while sharing a meal. Structural. Reporters were asked to leave for this part of the event. But later I called some participants, including Dee Grimm. The retired English teacher says she leans lightly left and thought these conversations were constructive because they started with personal
2: stories and backgrounds, because when you bring that to the table, suddenly people become human.
29: One of the ground rules was trying to understand differences rather than judge them. That worked for Dave Dean. He's a lifelong county resident on the conservative side. He doesn't want anyone on the margins to be treated poorly, but he says many parents in the county want to retain control over their kids' gender identity.
7: Some parents on one side don't want their
4: child to have any autonomy until they leave home. On the opposite side, you have parents who are going to give their child full autonomy as soon as they're able to express themselves.
29: Sometimes these conversations got tense, says Cecile Deeson. One of her three kids is transgender.
30: It's very emotional because these are real things that are happening to people. One woman shared about her, her child attempting to take their life, and that's so hard to hear. And then you want to comfort them.
28: It was very productive and very, quite frankly, inspiring.
29: Joe Shoker is a retiree who says he's conservative with traditional family values that include being a good citizen and coexisting with people you disagree with.
24: I think kids being
28: at home with lockdowns and doing all their classes online led parents really across the nation to be more cognizant of the instruction that was going on in the buildings. That combined with the culture wars almost created a wedge between parents and schools.
29: To rebuild trust between parents and schools is what Donica Hadley is hoping for. She's a college professor with three kids in the system. We just, we need to do better. Our kids deserve better. And
26: what they've seen in the last several years
29: has not been the best of us. But it's not too late to change. Like, I still have hope. The dialogue initiative will conclude with a public meeting of about 150 people tonight. They will meet with the hope of, if not agreeing, about anything, at least hearing each other out. For NPR News, I'm Randy B. Hagee in Harrisonburg, Virginia.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered. From NPR News. This is ninety point nine WBUR. As a Manhattan grand jury hears evidence about former President Donald Trump's involvement in a hush money arrangement, he also faces other scrutiny. My report is coming about in about 15 minutes. You can also tap to listen again on the WBUR app.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, offering an industry-aligned degree that can help drive better organizational and business decisions, bc.edu msae, and Peabody Essex Museum, with Power and Perspective, Early Photography in China, exploring the history of art, politics, and power, through April 2nd, pem.org. Should
0: have damp weather off and on this afternoon, evening, and ending sometime around midnight tonight or just before. Clouds lasting overnight, lows about 43, some winds whipping up tonight. Then tomorrow, sunshine burning through the clouds, breezy and cooler than today, highs about 52 degrees. For the weekend, rainy, windy, and chillier on Saturday, 44 degrees for a high. And then on Sunday, sunshine dry with strong winds, higher temperatures topping out at 58.
22: 59 degrees now in Boston at 449. WBOR supporters include Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
5: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Let's change. An independent investigation of the Silicon Valley bank failure, more oversight of mid sized banks, and to replace the head of the Federal Reserve. Now the Fed has raised interest rates again. Elizabeth Warren joins us. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang. Danny Hajar has always been surrounded by Arabic music. He grew up in the U.S., but his parents are both Lebanese immigrants who had it on all the time.
31: So it's really intrinsic to who I am and to everything that I enjoy and and try to do.
11: Over the last few years, he started to notice that this music was permeating through American pop culture in a different way.
31: So you're seeing it really with big Western production TV shows and film, like Mo on Netflix. Or Rami on Hulu. Or Moon Knight on Disney
21: Plus.
31: You're seeing Arabic music kind of used in a way that kind of acts as a storytelling device and not necessarily in a way where we've seen in Hollywood in the past where, you know, it can play up on sort of orientalist and racist tropes of Arab. (laughs) You've seen TikTok become a vital social app for people trying to discover new music. And then I think you've had major global events too like the World Cup in Qatar, where you had people more exposed to kind of the culture, the region, you had one of the main FIFA anthems with Nicki Minaj, with Maluma, and with Lebanese pop singer Miriam Ferris. So it's happening.
11: Danny Hajar wrote about the global breakthrough of Arabic music for Pitchfork. His article begins at Coachella, the giant California pop music festival, where next month, Palestinian Chilean singer Eliana will perform on the festival's main stage.
31: She'll be singing her entire set in Arabic. Hmm. There have been Arab artists at Coachella in the past, Mm -hmm. but to have an entire set fully sung in Arabic is very new. And so it's going to be exciting. It's it's an exciting time. And you're seeing all these things kind of pop up across, you know, different countries across the world that feature Arab artists and Arabic music.
11: I know that you've been talking to a lot of musicians and industry execs. And I was struck that one of them told you that he wants to replicate the success of Bad Bunny, who became like the most streamed artist on Spotify without making any English language music. Why do you think people express so much optimism these days about where Arab artists are going now?
31: I think there's a lot of optimism because we can see the groundwork happening. We can see what's happening from, you know, different pieces of the puzzle kind of starting to move together in tandem to put this, you know, picture together. You know, for Latin music, especially kind of with its global phenomenon and everything, that took years and years of firsts and artists coming through and trying different things and crossing over and what have you. And I think, you know, when Despacito came out, that <laughs> really blew the door open for Latin music in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And then Bad Bunny essentially built on that foundation um, and is now just a megastar and has put and you know is one of the many artists that helped put kind of Latin music on the map. We're seeing the same things with Arabic. It's very nascent right now. It may seem like you know, to us, it's new and it's exciting and it's getting bigger and bigger, but it's still fairly nascent. And so we're seeing that happening on, you know, the foundational level.
11: Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what are a few of your favorites among this new generation of Arab artists? Can you can you pick
5: a few?
31: I'll definitely <laughs> do my best to pick a few. Um, one of them for sure is is Wigs. Wiggs is an Egyptian rapper and well, I guess it's not fair to call him a rapper anymore because he's branched out into so many other genres. But what he's doing is so fascinating. I think he's so talented. The song Bakht by Wigs. Bakht is Arabic for the luck. And it is a profoundly beautiful song. It's incredibly vulnerable. It has a lot of kind of afro beats, afro-pop vibes from Wiggs. Big fan of Lana Lubani,
21: faces
31: Big fan of distinct. He's based in Europe, and he raps in Spanish, English, French, Italian, wow. and Arabic, sometimes all in the same song, so <laughs> things like that is just really fascinating to see.
11: Well, you know, we should note that these artists that we're talking about now are not by any means the first Arabic-speaking artists to break through to Western audiences, but is there anything different, stylistically or otherwise, with these newer artists? What would you say?
31: Yeah, I mean, you really raise a good point. I mean, there have been artists in the past, like Fay for example, who is an iconic Lebanese singer, who toured the United States. But what's different this time around is that, you know, these artists are kind of using an updated sound. I think a lot of times Arab pop, especially since the mid 80s, has sounded fairly the same. It sounds fairly formulaic. That's not to say it's not enjoyable, but it has kind of you know, stayed within the same sort of uh, framework. These new artists are combining, you know, R&B that you would have heard in the 2000s from Aaliyah or from TLC or Destiny's Child, and they're putting Arabic to it. Or you've got artists that are doing you know, drill rap in Arabic. And that is something that that feels fairly new. And so you've got a lot of younger generation folks who are connecting with that because it's their language with music that they would listen to by a Western artist, for example.
11: You know, just listening to you talk, Danny, and hearing so much pride, so much joy in your voice as you're talking about this music, Can you tell us more about what this means to you personally, as someone who's a child of Arab immigrants, who's Arabic speaking, for someone like you to hear Arabic music becoming more and more popular? What does that feel like?
31: It's the coolest thing. (laughs) This is the (laughs) coolest feeling. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, for the longest time, I felt afraid to speak Arabic in public because of, you know, the racial profile that would happen for Arabs or Arabic-speaking communities Mm -hmm. and now you have people using habibi which is a term of endearment in Arabic or people saying inshallah which means if God willing just casually, colloquially. That is something that I never thought it would ever happen in the US and you know let alone something where you know people are singing along or trying to learn Arabic or trying to understand the words or into Arab artists and so this to me means everything.
11: Music journalist Danny Hajar. His story for Pitchfork tracks the rise of Arab pop music. Thank you so much for this, Danny.
31: Thank you so much for having me.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families, available at aecf.org. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. 59 degrees now in the Boston area. Look for clouds through the evening hours and overnight tonight. Lows about 43. And then for tomorrow, should be partly sunny, about 52 degrees for high. Red Sox got back on the winning side today. They topped the Pirates 7-4 to 4 in spring training. Tonight, the Bruins host Montreal at the Garden, 7 o'clock game time. It's 4.59
9: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com.
26: I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Lawmakers hear from the CEO of TikTok as the threat that the app will be banned grows larger. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, the 23rd of March. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, as a Manhattan grand jury hears evidence about former President Trump's involvement in a hush money arrangement, it may be handling another case unrelated to the payoff. An Iraqi-American photojournalist returned to Iraq for the first time in nearly 25 years. He tells us about his trip back.
32: To be able to wake up and hear, you know, people outside your window that speak your own language, because I only felt that at home with my parents.
0: Also, clowns of all stripes are at the World Clown Association Convention in Orlando all this week to figure out how to become a better clown. It's 501.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Members of Congress from both parties grilled TikTok's CEO for four hours today during a House hearing where he was the sole witness. The lawmakers repeatedly bringing up concerns the Chinese-owned social media app could be used to spy on Americans. NPR's Dara Kerr reports on the contentious hearing.
26: The hearing kicked off with the committee's chair, Republican Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, admonishing TikTok CEO Shozi Chu. She said she wanted Americans to hear that, quote, TikTok is a weapon by the Chinese Communist Party to spy on you and manipulate what you see. Chu took issue with the word spy and said the app is, quote, free from any manipulation from any government. Lawmakers went on to say the app promotes dangerous posts to children and contains misinformation. Chu countered that TikTok has some of the strongest parental controls of any social media app. House members did not seem swayed by his answers. The testimony comes as White House officials said TikTok's Chinese owners must sell their stakes in the app. If not, TikTok could be banned in the U.S. Derek Kerr, NPR
33: News. The grand jury looking into hush money payments made on behalf of former President Donald Trump is meeting today on another matter. And as a result, there's speculation any indictment of Trump, if it does occur, likely will not take place until next week. That's because the grand jury doesn't normally meet on Friday, according to a person with knowledge of the probe. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has been questioning witnesses about the role Trump played in the payments to Stormy Daniels, whose claim she had a sexual relationship with Trump. The former president has denied the allegation. Senate Democrats say the recent collapse of two regional banks is deepening the stalemate over the terms for raising the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports lawmakers are up against the clock to reach a budget agreement to prevent a potential default.
24: Some Republicans argue that the bank failures were driven by high inflation and rising interest rates and that they validate GOP demands for spending cuts in the ongoing debt ceiling fight. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is accusing Republicans of threatening chaos by linking the bank collapses to a potential default.
6: If this environment is so bad for banks, why aren't all the banks affected? No, it's the few who are mismanaged. So to link the collapses with the debt ceiling... To suggest that these incidents should justify even more brinksmanship and hostage-taking is stunningly
24: reckless. President Biden delivered his budget to Congress two weeks ago. Republicans have yet to put their plan on the table. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, The Capitol.
33: The number of people filing first-time jobless claims edged down slightly last week, though only slightly. The government says initial claims for the week ending March 18th fell by 1,000 to a seasonally adjusted 191,000. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 75 points, The NASDAQ rose 117 points. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congressman Lori Trahan took part in today's congressional hearing on the social media giant TikTok. She challenged the company's CEO to be more transparent on how it operates and tracks users. Trahan also called on Sho Chu to implement stricter safety standards for children in the U.S., similar to what some other countries require.
30: Make the case for why you're different uh, from your American competitors and do better than them on transparency, which you've mentioned countless times today, but which we don't really have anything tangible to point to? Uh, uh,
32: yes, I, I don't want to make excuses for our industry or ourselves. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done.
0: CEO Sho Chu to also told lawmakers that TikTok will protect user data by storing it in servers that are owned by a U.S. company. Today, the MBTA announced that stricter speed restrictions along parts of its subway lines will remain in place for the foreseeable future. More than a quarter of the entire subway system currently contains so-called slow zones, and T-Riders now have a way to see if trains are running slower than normal. The MBTA today published a new interactive dashboard on its website. It shows where trains are being forced to reduce speeds because of track problems. Advocates for year-round residents of Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket say the islands are facing a housing crisis. The median price for a home on each island is more than $1 million. Dan O'Connell is a member of the coalition to create the Martha's Vineyard Housing Bank. He says year-round residents are forced from their rentals when tourist season arrives.
23: And most of those individuals who are forced out of housing are working two, three, and four jobs and, you know, some end up uh, living in tents in the summer. It's, it's that bad.
0: Some island residents want state lawmakers to pass legislation that would let the islands impose a 2% fee on high-end real estate sales. The money would go to rehab and create new affordable housing. A Massachusetts company has been implicated in a human smuggling operation. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency says the unnamed company rented a house in Lisbon, Maine, where 17 undocumented migrants were found on Tuesday. Officials say all the migrants worked for the company and were from Nicaragua and Guatemala. They were initially discovered by local police who were investigating a hit and run crash. In the forecast, 59 degrees now in the Boston area. More clouds through the evening hours, more spring showers as well. Overnight, tonight, lows about 43. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, breezy and cooler than today has been, just about 52 degrees. This is WBUR. It's
9: 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. This is All Things
10: Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
9: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver
11: City, California. Former President Trump has survived plenty of investigations already. There was the Mueller investigation, the Ukraine inquiry. But getting arrested and individually charged with a crime... That would be uncharted territory for Trump. No former president has ever been indicted. But that could change very soon with several criminal investigations hanging over Trump's head. NPR's Becky Sullivan joins us now to give us the latest on those investigations. Hi, Becky. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so let's start with the charges that could be imminent as of now. This is out of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office.
30: Yes. So this case centers on the hush money paid to Stormy Daniels. She is the adult film actress who alleges that she had an affair with Trump after meeting him at a celebrity golf tournament back in 2006. So in the run-up to the 2016 election, as Trump's campaign was picking up steam, Daniels was trying to shop her story around to gossip magazines like the National Enquirer. But the National Enquirer's leadership was friendly with Trump. They alerted his lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen who negotiated a deal with Daniels to pay her $130,000 in exchange for keeping her story quiet. Cohen transferred that money to Daniels less than 2 weeks before the election and then after Trump won Trump reimbursed Cohen including with his own personal checks. Now Trump admits to the reimbursement but he denies the affair. Right. So now what the Manhattan district attorney, Alvin Bragg, is trying to do here, he's a little bit uncharted. The potential crime is falsifying business records. So basically, the Trump organization said that those reimbursement payments were for legal fees, which is not true. But in New York, that's only a felony if it was done to cover up another crime. In this case, probably the violation of campaign finance laws. And there's been a lot of signals coming out of New York that an indictment could be coming any day now.
11: All right, so that's out of the Manhattan DA's mm-hmm. office. What other criminal investigations is Trump facing? Yeah.
30: So, the other one that could come soon is this election interference case out of Georgia. You might remember in 2020, Georgia was a very slim margin state that decided for the election for Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And Trump and his allies for weeks tried to pressure state officials in Georgia to basically undo his loss there. That included Trump's famous phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State, in which he asked him to quote, find about 12,000 votes. Trump allies also tried to cook up this fake elector scheme to send fake electors to the Electoral College to override rule the state's voters and say that Trump won Georgia instead. All of this and more was the subject of an inquiry by a special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia. That wrapped up in January and the top prosecutor there, Fonnie Willis, has said that decisions about charges are imminent.
11: And then there's also another investigation related to classified documents, right?
30: That's right. So that investigation is being led by the U.S. Department of Justice. Last year, the attorney general appointed a special counsel to oversee it. His name is Jack Smith, and he's actually overseeing another federal investigation as well. So there's the mishandling of the classified documents. So that includes uh, the ones that had to be recovered from Mar-a-Lago by the FBI. But also he's looking into Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election, including any issues related to January 6th. So we don't know much about what the timeline could be there. There. This doesn't seem as close to charges as the state cases do. And then of course, with the 2024 election getting closer and closer, any indictment out of the federal DOJ is sure to draw accusations of political motivations.
11: Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds like a lot of investigations so far, but you're mm-hmm. not even done, It's right? true.
30: Yes, he's also facing some high profile civil suits. There's two from E. Jean Carroll. This is the woman who accused Trump of sexually assaulting her in the 1990s, which Trump denies. One of her suits is scheduled to go to trial in April. And then also the New York State Attorney General Letitia James has sued Trump, along with three of his adult children and the Trump Organization, over what she says is years of financial fraud. And that trial is scheduled for October.
11: That is NPR's Becky Sullivan. Thank you so much, Becky. You are very welcome.
10: Photojournalist Salwan Georges has a memory of what he calls the grandest fireworks display he'd ever seen. It was the late 90s. He was a kid living in Baghdad. But before he could finish marveling at the night sky all lit up, his dad pulled him away from their apartment window. Georges would later learn those lights were an air defense system firing at American military planes, a prelude to the U.S.-led invasion that would forever change Iraq and his family. Well, Georges recently had a chance to return to Baghdad for the first time in more than twenty years. He documented the journey in a photo essay for the Washington Post, and he joins us now to talk about it. Salwan George is welcome.
32: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
10: So this week of course marks a big anniversary, twenty years since the war in Iraq began. But your family fled before the two thousand three invasion. Tell me why.
32: I was born in the Iraq Kuwait war. Uh, and then, uh, you know, lived through the U.S. imposed sanctions, which were very difficult. I remember as a kid, we would get electricity maybe like three hours a day. By mid-90s, you know, life kept getting harder. My grandparents left. Everybody started leaving, and we were kind of one of the last people from my family to leave. So
10: you make up your mind you're going to go back to this country that you were born in, that you haven't seen since you were eight years old. Were you... Excited? Nervous? A little bit of both?
32: U.S. is my home, but my homeland. I never had a chance to to remember what it feel like to be in my country. What it's like to go down the street and hear everybody that talks like you? Because I only felt that at home with my parents. So walking down the street in Iraq had really made me happy. Just to be able to not question if you fit in or not. I'm
10: thinking of you on the plane um, that's coming into Baghdad and just that first glimpse is maybe the city beneath you came into view. What went through your mind?
32: I was listening to a song uh, by a friend of mine who, that, that lyrics says, I heard Baghdad is calling for me. So as I'm landing and all the emotion building up, my eyes started tearing up. I just couldn't believe that uh, it's finally happening.
10: Yeah. What was the first place you went? Where'd you go?
32: So I got picked up by my colleagues, our awesome colleagues in in Baghdad. And then we went and got some amazing Iraqi food. <laughs>
10: <laughs> Perfect. Very what, did, of my what did you food.
32: eat? I'm big on local restaurants. So we went to a local restaurant that serves, like, Iraqi stews, uh, some lamb. And, uh, you know, the food tastes over there so much better.
10: <sighs> so you got some great Iraqi food. And then I know that parts of this trip must have been really hard um, you documented um, going to visit your grandfather's grave, his tomb, and finding it torn apart. What had happened?
32: I mean, the whole cemetery looked like something happened there. It looked like there was like, you know, maybe it was shelled or it was like a bomb went off there and I see his casket destroyed. So I was I was standing there like unable to move, not knowing what, what, what to say or what to think and and this is not how I wanted to go see my grandpa. And I'm sure this is not how he wanted me to see. No. Did
10: you find out what had happened?
32: So I asked Abu Muhammad. And Abu Muhammad it's a cemetery caretaker. And he told me this this area in the cemetery has seen a lot of violence. And one of them was the U.S. soldiers went in the cemetery breaking those tombs looking for weapons because they believed the Mahdi army were hiding them there.
10: Were you able to verify that? Do we know if it was U.S. troops?
32: I mean, I, I probably would never know what happened exactly because yeah. that area have seen so many violence. But it's been documented that uh, a lot of battles took, took place in cemeteries in that area, as well as Najaf, south of Iraq. But according to people who've been there 30 years or 20 years, they, they said that's what happened. And I'm sure, like, like I know, terrorist groups or who, who knows,
22: Well,
10: and that must raise so many complicated emotions for you as an Iraqi American, one foot in each country, knowing that perhaps people from your adopted country where you grew up did something like that, and many other things in the country where you were born. I'm sorry.
32: Yeah I mean I I you just don't know what to feel what to think then my colleagues of course who have been like brothers to me uh, who are Iraqis lived through the war been working for us for 14 years they were like don't worry we'll see what we can do so the following days I just uh, bought fresh sand I restored it I filled the tomb with sand I uh, with the help of Muhammad we bought cement So now when my family, if they can make it back, if they think they can come back, they could see it the way I wanted to see it, not what I saw.
10: I want to finish by circling back to where we began, this idea of going home after so many years. Because you write in your piece for The Post that one of the things you realized when you actually went and did it was you can't go home because the Iraq that you were born in no longer exists That feels like such a huge thing to try to wrap your arms around.
32: Yeah. I mean, sadly to say, growing up in the 90s, the streets were cleaner. The air was cleaner. It's so polluted right now. There's barely any palm trees. And the remaining palm trees all covered in dark dust. So there is a lot of things change. And also that Iraq that I remember, it was my family as well. And I don't have any family left in Iraq I made a new family when I went back. And uh, for me, it was just to turn a page on that Iraq that I grew up in and, you know, hopefully go back and create new memories and live, hopefully live and tell stories in the new Iraq.
10: Salwan, thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Salwan Georges, a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist for The Washington Post, about his latest photo essay, The Iraq I Never Knew.
11: We want to take a moment now to acknowledge what a difficult week it has been here at NPR. As an organization, we are losing around 10% of our staff.
10: And that includes several of the people who have worked tirelessly to bring you all things considered for years.
11: Now, other news organizations are reporting on what's happening here, and we will have that for you, too.
10: NPR's media reporter David Fokonflick will join us tomorrow once layoff announcements are largely complete, and we can bring you a more fulsome story about what is going on and what's to come.
11: And throughout it all, we remain committed to our deeply held mission to serve the public in partnership with our member stations. Thank you all out there for listening.
10: Proud to say thank you
0: to listening for listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, since February's major train derailment in Ohio, freight rail safety has come under scrutiny. A lot of workers blame a relatively new business model called precision scheduled railroading. That story and much more still to come.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974 in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com.
0: It was a rollicking day of trading on Wall Street, and in the end, stocks closed higher. The Dow picked up about a quarter of a percent, S&P rose three-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained just about one full percent. Also business news, the global artificial intelligence data company has moved its headquarters to Boston. Zuvu was founded in Austria, has offices throughout Europe. It helps companies tailor product offerings to customers based on the customer's online searches. Zuvu has 240 employees, and uh, that's worldwide, about 50 at its Boylston Street location. Marketplace has business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.20.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Join
0: NPR All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro and me this Sunday at City Space as we talk about his new memoir and tales from his broadcast career. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. And the forecast cloudy and damp for the next several hours. Strong winds overnight tonight, not too chilly, about 43 for a low. Then for tomorrow... Sunshine and clouds, both temperatures in the low 50s, tops. The weekend is looking mixed. Should be damp on Saturday. A lot of clouds around, only about 44 for a high. Then on Sunday, mainly sunny skies rising to about 58 degrees.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from IFC Films with The Lost King. From the Makers of Philomena comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she's found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III, only in theaters March 24th. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The sweet 16 round of the men's NCAA tournament picks back up today. The first weekend was anything but dull. And if you say your brackets in good shape, well, ESPN, Yahoo, and CBS Sports all say there aren't any remaining perfect brackets in their pools. Our next guest, Nicole Auerbach, had a number of teams on Upset Alert last week. So maybe her bracket is solid. She's a senior writer with The Athletic and has been covering March Madness. Welcome back to All Things Considered.
34: Yeah, thanks for having me. And don't worry, the bracket is in shambles, just like everyone (laughs) across America. I was just going to ask you how your bracket (laughs) was doing.
11: Well, you know, the last time we spoke, you gave us your final four predictions. Um, They were Alabama, Indiana, Marquette, and Kansas. Only Alabama (laughs) remains. So... I don't know what do you think that says about how even all these teams are right now
34: well there is a lot of parity in the sport right now and you know when you ask coaches they have a lot of different reasons for it but one of the main ones is the transfer portal because you're seeing really talented players at schools that are not just riding the bench at the best schools in the country you know if they're not getting playing time they're going somewhere else and they're playing there were definitely some surprises in the opening weekend But I can say we have seen these double-digit seeds get all the way to the Sweet 16 a lot more frequently in the last couple of years. And so Princeton is actually just part of a trend and not an aberration, and they believe that they belong.
11: That's so interesting. Okay, well, then, of the 16 teams who've made it this far, tell me, like, whose storyline for you is the most captivating on the men's bracket.
34: Well, there are so many. And I think, you know, Florida Atlantic is into the Sweet 16 as a nine seed. And they were just in a situation against number 16 seed FDU where like the world was rooting against them. And that's so (laughs) shocking for a beloved mid major that we've been excited to see in the big dance all along. But they're through last weekend, I was in Greensboro. So I had an up close view to Kansas State. And I think that they also have an incredible story to get here with a first-year coach in Jerome Tang. They weren't even sure that they could get to an NCAA tournament. And now here they are in the Sweet 16.
11: Okay, so can you just further break down tonight's matchups for us? Like, who's coaching against whom? Who do you think has an advantage?
34: You have... Florida Atlantic, a team that has been a mid-major darling all season long with Dusty May rising star in the profession against Rick Barnes and Tennessee. And we know how physical that they can play. And if they can muddy the game, then Tennessee is going to be in good shape. Then you have Kansas State and first-year head coach Jerome Tang. This was a team that only had two players last spring and had to rebuild the entire roster. And he'll be up against a coach that whose name is synonymous with the month of March in Tom Izzo. People love to say hmm. January, February, Izzo because <laughs> his teams are so good this time of year. And then you flip over to Las Vegas and you've got two Fiery coaches in Eric Musselman and Danny Hurley. These are two coaches you're going to want to keep an eye on the sidelines in this game because they get heated. You saw Eric Musselman; he was the one who took off his shirt and was running around <laughs> after they made the Sweet Sixteen. I love it. his last name is Musselman. And his last name is Musselman. So that one's going to be really fun and and could end up being the best game of the entire round, just because I think of how evenly matched they are in the styles of play.
11: So let me ask you, tomorrow, the women's Sweet 16 starts. And you said that this tournament was South Carolina's to lose. Are, Are you still standing by that?
34: I do still stand by that because they're just so deep. We saw them struggle a little bit early against South Florida, and then they just turn on the Jets. It's so hard to play them because they just continually have bodies. And some of the best players in the country, Aaliyah Boston, is relentless. She is the piece that makes that team go.
11: Well, before I let you go, let me ask you about the coach at Ole Miss. She seemed to have a great story. She said that she was not
34: the school's first choice. Is that right? so coach yo is one of the great personalities in women's basketball she is so full of life and has had an unlikely path to get here and this was obviously a breakthrough moment for them to beat stanford on their own home court this put ole miss on the map and coach yo has been chasing Don staley she loves her she considers her a mentor and this is a big statement for her along the rise of getting up to the point where you can beat South Carolina.
11: Nicole Auerbach is senior writer with The Athletic. Thank you so much.
34: Thanks for having me.
10: righty, time to get your red noses out. Clowns from around the globe are gathered for an annual convention in Orlando this week. Reporter Danielle Pryor from member station WMFE went to the World Clown Convention to learn
24: more about the artistry of clowning around. Fans of the 2017 horror film It, based on the Stephen King novel of the same name, probably recognize this voice. Hiya, Georgie. Pennywise the Clown, played by actor Bill Skarsgård, has a distorted face and preys on unsuspecting children in not one, but two movies. But at the 40th Annual World Clown Association Convention in Orlando, the clowns sound a little more like this. I'm sparkly, I'm glittery, and
2: I'm, I i think I'm kind of cute and colorful. And Daisy is called a nagus clown. Mm-hmm.
26: Yes, absolutely. So it's a light makeup. My texture of
24: skin is a little bit darker, so I want to make my smile pop, my eyes pop. That's Robin Bryan, whose clown name is Pinky B. and Kenesha Ducree, who goes by Daisy. Together, they run the WCA as president and director of education. Ducree hands me a bright pink and orange heart-shaped balloon headpiece. AND WE'RE OFF TAKING A TOUR AROUND THE VENDOR booths. LITTLE squeakers. (laughs) HERE CLOWNS CAN STOCK UP ON ANYTHING FROM RED NOSES AND CLOWN SHOES TO ELABORATE PUPPETS AND MAGIC PROPS. ALL WEEK CLOWNS COMPETE FOR TITLES LIKE BEST COSTUME AND BEST SKIT. THEY HAVE WORKSHOPS WHERE THEY PRACTICE FACE PAINTING AND BALLOON ART AND OF COURSE THEY NETWORK. FOR THE CLOWNS HERE, THE CONFERENCE IS SERIOUS BUSINESS.
28: IT'S VERY MUCH A COMMUNITY HUB making those connections.
24: Charles Lauder is a professional hobo clown in the vein of Charlie Chaplin. He came from Manitoba, Canada. In fact, the World Clowning Association has members in 35 countries. And although some members work in circuses and at big county fairs, most are clowns at local hospitals, senior centers, and schools. Ducree even takes her clowning around the world to help people. I love humanitarian trips, so I've been to six continents in more than 37 countries doing clowning. Her counterpart, Robin Bryan, is a hospital clown. My husband and I have over 1,500 volunteer hours for Wolfson's Children's Hospital.
2: So we go in every week and we do our best to give smiles and cheers and laughter. And that's what is important about absolutely, being a
24: clown, right? Absolutely. It's the shared vision of fun and communion that attracts members even online. Ducree says with social media, it's never been easier to stay connected outside the walls of the conference year-round. And it comes in handy for clowns to stay on top of pop culture. We do have Facebook groups. So if we know a new Disney story or party is coming out, like, uh-oh, how do we make this moana sword nowadays people of all ages backgrounds and abilities can learn clowning online which is why brian says despite the scary movies and negative cliches clowning will continue i don't worry about fears or stereotypes i'll just do my best to put my best foot forward and be a joyful clown the conference concludes on friday with the crowning of the best all around clown for npr news i'm danielle Pryor in orlando
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. In sports, Red Sox piled on the Pirates 7-4 to today in spring training play. Boston University men's hockey team is progressing in the college hockey playoffs. Today, the Terriers won a first-round game over Western Michigan. BU will play in the next round Saturday against either Denver or Cornell. Two other local teams get their shots soon. Merrimack and Harvard are have first-round games tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR, 59 degrees now in Boston at 5.30.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, tax lawyers committed to your most taxing matters. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Massachusetts
5: Senator Elizabeth Warren. Let's change. An independent investigation of the Silicon Valley bank failure, more oversight of mid sized banks, and to replace the head of the Federal Reserve. Now the Fed has raised interest rates again. Elizabeth Warren joins us. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR.
6: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The administration of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wants to extend through the 12th grade a controversial law dubbed Don't Say Gay by critics. As NPR's Greg Allen tells us, it would prevent discussions of sexual orientation and gender identity in all but certain health classes. A law enacted last year prevents any teacher-led discussion of gender identity or sexual orientation kindergarten through third grade. A bill moving through the Republican-controlled legislature this session would extend the ban through eighth grade and forbid teachers from using any pronouns for a student other than those that match the student's sex at birth. Now a rule proposed by DeSantis' education commissioner goes further, extending the ban through high school. The rule, likely to be approved by the State Board of Education next month, says the only exception is in health classes, where sexual orientation and gender identity are part of the curriculum. Greg Allen, NPR News. The British Parliament has banned TikTok, the Chinese-owned video sharing app, from all government devices there. NPR's Frank Langford reports the move comes as U.S. lawmakers in Congress today grilled TikTok CEO on Capitol Hill. The
16: parliamentary ban follows an earlier one by the British government. The Scottish government also announced it's banning TikTok from its mobile phones and corporate devices. Officials cite concerns about cybersecurity given TikTok's Chinese ownership. On Capitol Hill, TikTok CEO Sho Chu insisted the company would protect US user data. And so far, there's no evidence the Chinese government has harvested Americans' data from the app. It's also unclear just how many devices the ban here in the U.K. would affect. Scotland's Deputy First Minister, John Swinney, said use of TikTok will be limited within the government in Edinburgh, and the ban would not extend to staffers' personal
6: devices. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street today. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts legislature has sent a $389 million supplemental budget to Governor Moore Healy's desk for her signature. The compromise bill from the House and Senate sets aside $65 million to fund the state's universal school meals program through the end of the next school year. It also dedicates millions to the state's shelter system and temporarily extends some expanded benefits to participants of SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. More than a quarter of the MBTA's subway system is subject to an order for trains to go slower than usual. And T leaders say the so-called slow zones are going to be in place for the foreseeable future. The MBTA's interim general manager, Jeff Gonneville, told the T's board of directors today that track repairs are needed before restrictions will be lifted, and he has no estimate for when that will happen.
7: This is something that we're obviously fully recognize our our, our, the, our customers frustration, um, but the safety of the system is our highest priority. And right now, we are taking a very conservative approach with this to ensure that that safety.
0: Gonneville says the work will require more weekend and weekday evening shutdowns on some parts of the system. As of today, riders can access a new dashboard on the T's website to see exactly where the slowdowns are. Town officials in air say nobody was hurt when a freight train derailed there today. It happened. Just before noon near scully road officials say five rail cars carrying trash and recycling materials derailed the air fire department says none of the cars contained hazardous materials bristol county's sheriff is lowering the age to become a corrections officer at his facilities the new age requirement will be 18 previously it was 19. sheriff paul hero says that his office has been losing out on good candidates who found other jobs between their 18th and 19th birthdays This is WBUR.
22: It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with Maria Berrio, a riveting series of paintings exploring childhood and migration. Plan your visit at ICABoston.org. Some clouds, along with some brighter
0: spots out there right now, drizzle in some areas. Clouds overnight tonight, lows about 43, winds whipping up. Tomorrow, sunshine burning through the clouds, breezy and cooler than today, about 52 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 535.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary
10: Louise Kelly in Washington. Deceptive. Evasive. Evasive unconvincing. These are some of the ways lawmakers here in Washington today described the CEO of TikTok. He was the sole witness in a 5-hour hearing on whether Americans' data on the popular video-sharing app is safe. And Piers Bobby Allen joins me to discuss how the CEO's performance might affect the future of TikTok. Hey Bobby.
3: Hey Mary Louise.
10: Sounds like a rocky day for the TikTok CEO. How did he go about defending the app before Congress? <laughs>
3: Yeah. So his name is uh, Shou Chu. He's the CEO of TikTok, as you mentioned. And he told lawmakers that the Chinese government has never requested the data of Americans. And he made this point so many times, it's hard to count. (laughs) When asked yes or no questions, he wouldn't bite and instead he would recite a fact. Lawmakers got really fed up with him. They kept interrupting him. They kept scoffing at him. They were scolding him. It was pretty intense.
10: Uh, How did he take that?
3: Well, he mostly maintained his composure and didn't lose his temper, which I thought was pretty impressive. Um, At one point he said he just isn't able to prove a negative, then cracked a little smile and said, which I've been trying to do for hours now. Uh, A little bit about Chu, he was born and raised in Singapore, where he was an army reservist before becoming an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. And now, of course, he leads TikTok. Uh, And he did have some fans in the room. There was an audience of TikTok influencers who rallied before the hearing to show support for the app. Uh, The company says it now has more than 150 million users in the US. That's half, almost half of the US population. It's incredible. Uh, And Chu said TikTok has a company restructuring plan in place to Build a firewall between the us and China.
10: Yeah, that's that's what I want to ask about. Did we get details on that and um, and how did lawmakers receive this plan?
3: Not well would be a nice way to put it. I mean, Chu came with his three or four talking points, but lawmakers just kept saying this sounds deceptive. It seems like you're dodging questions. And the really big sticking point, Mary Louise, was this this new firewall that TikTok is building and loves talking about is supposed to make it a lot more difficult for Beijing based employees to get their hands on Americans' data. But TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, and TikTok share a ton of resources. They share engineering teams, they share a legal team, and ultimately ByteDance is the boss of TikTok. Texas Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw said he had this message for all the TikTokers out there who think lawmakers are just out of touch and trying to take away young people's favorite app.
28: You may not care that your data is being accessed now, but it will be one day when you do care about it. And here's the real problem. With data comes power. They can choose what you see and how you see it. They can make you believe things that are not true. They can encourage you to engage in behavior that will destroy your life. Even if it is not happening yet, it could in the future.
10: All right. Well, let's stay with what might happen in the future. How might today's hearing influence whether TikTok has a future in the U.S.?
3: Right. And that's the question, right? Um, and it's hard to imagine that Chu made the situation any better for TikTok, to be honest. I mean, this comes as Congress is pursuing legislation that would enable President Biden to put TikTok out of business. Uh, and Shu said that shouldn't be necessary, right? He keeps insisting that TikTok has always taken national security concerns very seriously and that he and other members of TikTok's executive team have been negotiating for years with the White House to try to reach some kind of deal uh, and he says, look, I know I have to win over Americans' trust with TikTok. He told the Congress people that, right? But he also admitted that Beijing employees, at least right now, are able to get their hands on Americans' personal information, though. Yes, they have a plan to put an end to it, but they could still access it now, right? Um, But look, he ducked so many direct questions about how Chinese officials could try to use the app to manipulate the opinion of Americans. Uh, And as we know, the Biden administration has ordered TikTok to sell to an American company. But the Chinese government is now pushing back, citing export control laws. So, Mary Louise, the future of TikTok is very, very uncertain and likely to become even more uncertain after today.
10: And PR is Bobby Allen. Thank you, Bobby.
11: Thanks. The John Wick movies started with a simple premise, just Keanu Reeves as a retired hitman trying to avenge the death of his wife and dog. Then the world-building started, and with each new installment, the films got more elaborate. Chapter 4 clocks in at close to three hours of globetrotting, gunshot-riddled mayhem. And critic Bob Mondello does not sound at all unhappy about that.
28: I'm going to need a gun. Carnage and Keanu. What's not to like? Normally I'd say the carnage, but in the John Wick series, when something wicked this way comes, it comes like dance, like mime, like movement so curated and elegant, it barely even registers as unsettling. Amen. Reviewing the earlier Wick films, I've talked about ballet. For this one, I'm struck by architecture. One villain. Who is this? The Marty de Gramo Played by a Louche Bill Skarsgard, has an office in Manhattan grand enough to be an airport terminal, but for more important meetings, he also has private access to the Paris Opera and the Louvre.
21: You come here thinking there is a way out of this world for you, Mr. Wick. There is not.
28: Wick lives in a world where discos don't just have waterfalls, they are waterfalls, the better to wash away blood from mayhem with axes. Wick World hotels are entirely made up of grand public spaces, crime families have layers that would do a Bond villain proud, and every gun-fu battle, there are 14 according to the filmmakers, is backlit and color-coded. Green for fists, guns, and swords, red for knives, guns, and bows and arrows, blue for kicks, guns, and nunchucks, and a golden glow for a demolition derby Wick leads the wrong way round the Arc de Triomphe. Stuntman-turned-director Chad Stileski ensures that each cataclysm-befalling wick is spectacularly choreographed, and a gratifyingly human, empathetic, and vulnerable Keanu Reeves, at 58, has the grace to appear at least momentarily slowed when struck by a car, dropped from a fourth floor window, or body slammed by Scott Adkins in a fat suit. He's also slowed a bit less momentarily by friendship. Wick has caring pals in Lawrence Fishburne's Bowery King, who keeps him looking good. 42 regular, wasn't it? While armored, it's Kevlar front to back, the latest in ballistic chic. Also, Ian McShane's hotel manager. Last words, Winston? Just that fun, huh? And the late Lance Reddick as his concierge. But the high table, the nefarious group that's placed a price on Wick's head to attract platoons of thugs he has relatively little trouble dispatching, is also placing his buddies in his way this time. A blind assassin played by martial arts great Donnie Yen. You going to die?
19: Maybe not.
28: The daughter of another pal played by singing sensation Rina Sawayama. You armed? And for emotional resonance, a dog owner. <laughs> Who calls himself Nobody, played by Shamir Anderson, all leading to a Parisian showdown in front of the Basilica at Sacre Coeur, which sits atop a staircase, we're told, of 222 steps. Rest assured that Wick, having arrived at the bottom, bone-weary,
33: You ready, John? Yeah.
28: will arrive at the top, having felt every one of those steps at least once on some part of his body, His pain, as ever in this remarkable series, the film's game. I'm Bob Mandela.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's one of the biggest trends to shape the railroad industry in more than a century. Precision Scheduled Railroading, or PSR. It's a business model that's propelled railroad companies to record-breaking profits. But some rail workers say PSR has made accidents, like last month's derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. More likely, Adrian Ma and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain.
8: For decades, the business of freight rail operated like this. The railroad companies brought in their trains, and the customers loaded them up with their corn or their coal or chemicals or whatever. And when that was done, the trains hauled the stuff away. And in this way, railroads were sort of like
4: big taxis, right? Customers dictated the schedule. Then in the 1990s came a railroad executive by the name of Hunter Harrison. He pioneered this new approach to the business precision scheduled railroading, or PSR. It was all about cutting costs and making things more efficient. Under his system, freight
8: trains became less like taxis and more like commercial airliners. Now, railroad companies, not their customers, would dictate the schedule. And if the customers missed their departure time, tough nuggies
4: another aspect of PSR was doing more with less. It was reducing the number of employees and trains while making the remaining trains longer and loading them up with more cargo. Fewer employees, fewer trains, more cargo. That meant bigger profits but we also wanted to know what the change felt like for the workers. So we called up Eddie Hall, who was a train engineer for about 25 years.
8: Eddie, by the way, is head of a union called the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. And he says it used to be that a typical train with its cars and its engines all lined up, maybe it was a mile and a half long and weighed about 6,000 tons. Where
23: nowadays, a train is closer to three miles long And the tonnage is over 20,000 tons.
4: He says the longer trains tend to run into more mechanical problems.
8: One more thing that's happened with PSR is that it's put more pressure on employees to keep the trains moving. Eddie says the terminal managers who direct traffic in and out of the rail yards, they're now judged by various metrics like dwell time, which is basically how quickly can they take incoming cars and get them back on the rails.
4: In short, Eddie believes PSR has made railroads less safe. Well, I can tell you that the data don't bear that out. That's Ian Jeffries. He's the president of the Association of American Railroads, an industry group. And the data he's talking about comes from an industry regulator, the Federal Railroad Administration.
31: Just take a look at
6: 2022, for example. uh, When it comes to Class 1 railroads, we had the lowest all-time accident rate across our main lines in our history.
8: If you look at the accident rates for major railroads on those main lines, it went down about 9% during the years when precision railroading was really taking off in the US. But if you factor in the accidents that happen off the main lines during the same period, the industry's accident rate actually increased 20%. Okay, hard to make too many conclusions from this. Exactly, right? These numbers do not tell a clear story on PSR. And either way, the industry may get some extra help from Congress on rail safety, whether they want it or not. Adrian Ma. Darian
4: Woods, NPR News.
17: Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking
0: for business.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered. NPR follows the cases of those arrested in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. We'll hear about some of those charged and what motivated them to join in. And just ahead, uh, Abbott Elementary's Cheryl Lee Ralph uh, funding a spotlight later in life.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium purveyors of vintage and new acoustic guitars for more than 50 years because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.
0: If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBR app. Download it at the App Store today. In the forecast, some bright spots out there right now. Overnight tonight, though, it should be cloudy with temperatures about 43 for a low. Then for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds, both temperatures in the low 50s tops. The weekend is looking pretty mixed from here. Gray and wet on Saturday, only about 44 degrees for high. Then on Sunday should be the better day for being outdoors, mostly sunny, rising to about 58 degrees. In the Boston area, now 59 degrees. The time is 549.
9: WBUR supporters include Waterstone Lexington, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club. WaterstoneLexington.com.
5: I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today.
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers.
26: She was the first to play the role of Dina Jones in the original production of Dreamgirls on Broadway. The second Black woman to win an Emmy for supporting actress in a comedy.
35: I am here to tell you that this is what believing looks like. This is what striving looks like. And don't you ever...
26: Never give up on you. And earlier this year, the third to perform Lift Every Voice and Sing at the Super Bowl.
16: Let it resound loud as the road leads me.
26: It's kind of hard to imagine that about 15 years ago, actor and singer Cheryl Lee Ralph had considered walking away from show business. Opportunities had seemed to dry up. She was focusing on her family life. But then she tells the story about a chance run-in with a casting director who told her to get back in the game and remember who she is.
35: You know, the reason I tell people you got to believe in yourself is for that time. I stopped believing in me. I stopped believing in my ability. I spoke to Cheryl Lee
26: Ralph about how she rediscovered her ability and where it's led her,
35: starting with how it felt to perform at the Super Bowl live. Oh, my God. First of all, it's like being in the Coliseum. This is like being in the middle of this massive gathering of human beings. And just them, the 70,000 of them in that one space, there's a, a, almost a deafening din, you know, that, that sound. And I got up there and sang my song and I loved the moment. I loved the moment.
26: You know, I was a bit surprised to hear you talk about almost stepping away from the business in the early 2000s. I mean, I'm in my 30s and I have to say you were a primetime TV staple for people like me and my friends is D Mitchell, the mother to Brandy's character on Moesha for 6 seasons. So, I'd love to know a bit more about what made you consider stepping out of the spotlight then.
35: Ooh. You know what it's so it was so strange. I had gone through a divorce, and um, I was definitely going through that and my uh, children. You know, you want to keep your children stable. And for some reason, after Moesha, things just kind of slowed down. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this is where I quit and, you know, I'll be that person. You know, the one that used to be. And... um I had that fateful run-in with the casting director who said, you know, you've obviously forgotten who you are. And I was really, I was like, wow, wow. But the moment I doubled down and started to believe in myself and dream bigger dreams for myself and put in the work towards making those things happen, wow, everything is very different, very different.
26: I want to talk now about the show Abbott Elementary. You've won an Emmy for the role of longtime kindergarten teacher Barbara Howard. She is super pragmatic, very no-nonsense, and a little cutting when she interacts with the younger teachers like Quinta Brunson's Janine. Janine, do not get your hopes up because Ava will find a way to bring them down.
25: I don't think that's fair.
26: She's been doing the work. Maybe Ava has never risen to expectations because nobody believed in her. That's not it. I just have to say, she's a bit of a contrast to the optimism and the glowing positivity that you seem to exude everywhere you go. And (laughs) respectfully, her wardrobe is also quite a far cry from that red carpet look and what she wore at the Super Bowl. So tell me, how do you channel your inner Barbara? How do you get into character?
35: Okay, I'll tell you this, because this is true. Every time a character and I connect... Their voice and demeanor come right off the pages and into me. And what, sometimes when I look at the screen and I see Barbara Howard, I'm like, look at that woman. Because she's certainly not me. You know, I look at that wig, I look at the sweater sets. Oh, my God, sometimes my head swirls within (laughs) the things that she chooses to wear. I mean, Barbara Howard and her comfortable shoes. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's funny to me, but I love her so much. And you got to give the character the respect that they deserve, because they will demand it from you. And she's a very demanding character.
26: I mean, Abbott resonates with just about anyone who's ever set foot inside a classroom, but there is also an undeniable Blackness in the show's humor, its themes, and its casting. Was that sort of representation something that you were searching for before you got this role?
35: You know something from me? I come from a time when I was first starting out where I was told by a producer, literally, I was fired from the job for not being Black enough. And I could not understand what he meant by that statement. I just wasn't black enough. Mm. Mm. But to now have a young woman in Quinter Brunson look at me and say, Miss Ralph, they're sleeping on your talent, but I'm not. And I am exactly what they needed. Just the way I am. Just the artist that I am. Just the woman that I am. It is all what is needed.
26: You know... You are someone who is now getting so much recognition for all of your talent at the later part of your life. And I'm just curious, how do you think about all of that?
35: I love it. Okay, I'm going to tell you this. Do you remember that movie, The Titanic? Yeah. At the beginning of the movie, there is this very old woman telling a story. That woman was an actress She hung in there and she got her break at 90 years old. I loved that story. Hmm. So for me to be here in my 60s, making it, and I mean really making it, I'm like, I don't know what is going on right now, but thank you, God, I receive it. But I realize it is definitely not just for me. It is for others to know. If I can do it, you can do it. I I sometimes look at people and I'm like, oh my God, you have no idea the possibilities of your own life. I mean, I've had to sit with people sometimes and wake them up to who they are. Just like that casting director woke me up to who I am. Sometimes you just got to know you are enough. Now, carry on with that. You are enough. Yes.
26: Emmy Award-winning, Tony Award-nominated actor and singer Cheryl Lee Ralph. Her book, Diva 2.0, 12 Life Lessons From Me To You, is out now. Thank you so much for speaking
35: with us. Thank you very much. And, and, you know, take a moment to celebrate you. Because you really matter.
20: Yeah.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at Edutopia.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication, designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. May need the umbrella tonight. Hang on to it tightly, though. Winds could reach about 20 miles an hour. Overnight lows about 43. Tomorrow should rise to about 52 degrees with sunshine and clouds both. After 20 years, the state of Massachusetts is updating its form to enroll and track students' progress in special ed. The hope is that the better the process gets, it creates a better process for students. That's tomorrow when you wake up to WBUR.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, proud to support Boston Medical Center and their Supporting Our Families Through Addiction and Recovery program, committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org.
24: I'm senior business reporter Yasmina Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: 1,000 people have been charged in the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021.
33: The majority are actually not card carrying members of, of any movement or group. These are people that were animated by lies.
0: Who are these people? NPR has tracked them down. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also coming up nationwide protests in France after the president enacts reforms to the country's pension system without the approval of parliament. 20 years after the first bombs dropped on Baghdad, the U.S. Senate is set to repeal the war authorization for the Iraq war in a bipartisan effort. And residents of southern Turkey are struggling to observe Ramadan as they remain displaced by earthquakes. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Senate is getting closer to voting on a repeal of two congressional authorizations that justified U.S. military force against Iraq, NPR's Barbara Spahn explains the legislation would rescind the 2002 and 1991 authorizations for the use of military force in Iraq.
5: Supporters of the effort to repeal the authorizations argue Congress should reassert its constitutional war authorities and curb executive powers. Supporters also say an official repeal serves a symbolic purpose. Here's Democratic Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, who
13: introduced the legislation. Iraq was an adversary. Now Iraq is a strategic partnering. And that message needs to go out that the United States has
5: no permanent enemies. The legislation would not affect the 2001 war authorization that was approved after the September 11th terrorist attacks that year. It continues to give the president broad legal authority to conduct counterterrorism operations around the world. Barbara Sprint, NPR News the capital.
33: It's been 13 years since the Affordable Care Act was signed into law. As NPR's Amanda Bastillo reports, President Biden marked the occasion with an event to mark the signing of the landmark health care law passed when he was vice president.
18: Earlier this year, a record 16.4 million people signed up for health insurance in the marketplaces set up after the passage of the Affordable Care Act. A boost in recent years of federal funding for the program, also known as Obamacare, has resulted in some cheaper health insurance plans. Republicans had made killing Obamacare a major part of their platform, but backed away from that position during last year's midterms. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News. The White House.
33: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis appears to be walking back his previous remarks that Russia's war against Ukraine is a territorial dispute. Verso follows some criticism from fellow Republicans who said they're concerned over the potential 2024 presidential candidates dismissive remarks about the conflict. Getting more expensive to borrow money on both sides of the Atlantic. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Bank of England raised interest rates today following the lead of the Fed.
6: The Bank of England raised its benchmark interest rate by a quarter percentage point today, echoing the Fed's action on Wednesday. Both central banks are battling high inflation. Prices in the U.K. are up more than 10 percent in the last year, outpacing the 6 percent inflation rate here in the U.S. In addition to higher interest rates, the Fed expects banks to be more stingy about lending money in the wake of two recent bank failures. In announcing the rate hike yesterday, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell pointed to a very tight job market, and there's fresh evidence of that today. New claims for unemployment benefits dipped slightly last week to 191,000. That's low by historical standards and suggests, despite high-profile layoffs, job opportunities are still plentiful.
33: Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 75 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Slow zones on portions of the MBTA subway lines will remain in place for now. The head of the T said today the speed restrictions help guarantee safety for workers as they continue to inspect tracks for defects. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports.
25: About a quarter of the subway system is under speed restrictions. Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville told the authorities' board of directors the number of slow zones will change frequently as track wear and tear is repaired.
7: The speed restrictions themselves may go up and they may go down on a daily basis. And in some instances, in in some areas, we have larger block restrictions or a larger restriction that is in place.
25: Gonneville says slowdowns will be lifted or shortened as corrective action is taken. The T just went live with a new online dashboard to alert riders on the current
0: slowdowns. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo Hernandez. Incidents of anti-Semitism are on the rise in Massachusetts. The Anti-Defamation League released an annual audit today. It shows there was a 41% increase in anti-Semitic acts in the state between 2021 and 2022. Peggy Shuker is interim regional director of the ADL and says the problem has gone mainstream. She points to remarks made by Yee, the artist formerly known as Kanye West.
2: In Massachusetts, we've had examples of signs reading "Ye was right, or even school children who maybe don't even understand what those words mean, repeating them, which is the power of celebrity. He has more followers than there are Jews in in the world.
0: Shuker says that Massachusetts had the sixth highest number of anti-Semitic incidents in the country last year. The city of Boston wants permission to add 250 liquor licenses. The city council passed the home rule petition yesterday. It would add 50 licenses a year over the next five years to specific neighborhoods, including Mattapan, Hyde Park and Roxbury. City councilor and co-sponsor Brian Worrell says it's all about equity.
8: We are working within the guardrails of an antiquated system that has systemically uh, limited black and brown communities to accumulate assets and wealth, and this is why this rule petition is so crucial, as it will start providing the tools our black and brown restaurant owners need to create vibrant business districts and neighborhoods that have been left out for far too long.
0: Mayor Michelle Wu's office says she intends to sign the measure. It would also need approval from both chambers of the state legislature and from the governor before it could go into effect. 59 degrees now in the Boston area. Look for clouds overnight tonight. Some drizzle off and on, some wild winds too. And for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, breezy, cooler than today has been. Temperatures just about 52 degrees. 59 degrees in Boston at 607.
16: WBUR supporters include the Lemelson Foundation dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at Lemelson.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And
11: I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This month saw a new milestone in the effort to prosecute the people who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. More than 1,000 people have now been charged in one of the largest criminal probes in U.S. history. And NPR's investigations team has been tracking every one of those cases. We've got Meg Anderson from the team here to tell us more. Hi, Meg. Hey, Elsa. Hey. So can you just give us more of a sense of the kind of work that has been involved for the Justice Department to bring these 1,000 plus charges?
12: Yeah. I mean, to put it briefly, it's been a ton of work. Across the country, every U.S. attorney's office and every FBI field office has been involved. For the past two years, they've been reviewing literally millions of pieces of evidence, including police body camera footage, surveillance footage from the building, and all of the many photos and videos that were posted to social media and on people's cell phones. At one point, the FBI said that if you watched all the footage back to back without taking any breaks, it would take almost an entire year to get through it. Wow. And I should say, we're likely not even halfway done. The Justice Department has said it thinks around 2,000 people were involved in the attack.
11: Oh, so we're just barely halfway. Okay, so how are these cases so far being resolved? Like what kinds of different outcomes are you seeing?
12: Yeah, so around 75 people have gone to trial, but most people have not gone that route. About half of the defendants have pleaded guilty. And so far, nearly 450 people have been sentenced. Mostly those are the people who entered plea deals. And the consequences at sentencing have varied widely. A little more than half of those people have gotten some jail time, and that's ranged from seven days to 10 years. Hmm. But on the whole, in about two thirds of the cases, we found that the judges are actually giving less prison time than what prosecutors asked for. Now, nearly all of these cases have been heard in a single federal district in D.C., and the judges there have been appointed by presidents from both parties, from Reagan all the way up to Biden.
11: These judges that you say are giving less prison time in general than prosecutors are asking for, I mean, when they're handing down these sentences, what kinds of things are they saying to the defendants?
12: Obviously, it varies. Every case is different, sure. but there are themes in what they've been saying. Uh, for one, the judges aren't looking at these crimes in isolation. It's not you know, just that someone walked through the Capitol and they weren't supposed to. The significance of January 6th as an attempt to undermine the peaceful transition of power is playing a part. Judge John Bates told one man that he was, quote, an active participant in a mob assault on our core democratic values. And speaking of that mob, you know, they also emphasize that being swept up in it is not an excuse. Judge Amy Berman Jackson told one defendant that, quote, no one was swept away to the Capitol. No one was carried. The rioters were adults. And another thing I've noticed is that they do seem to take into account whether or not someone shows remorse. And that seems to be in part because the judges do seem to worry that this type of thing could happen again. Judge Reggie Walton told a defendant that if people get the impression that there's no real consequence for this, they'll say, why not do it again?
11: Well, what actions is the government taking now to prevent a repeat of what we saw on January 6th?
12: I spoke to John Lewis about this. He's a researcher at George Washington University, and he said that looking at who's responsible for getting all those people to the Capitol in the first place is really important.
13: I think a lot of it now does come down to the special counsel and to DOJ more broadly to recognize that if you're just gonna keep arresting the 925th guy who just walked into the Capitol, took some photos and walked out, it risks missing the forest for the trees.
12: And the government has been working toward that accountability. Late last year, the House committee issued its final report, which concluded that President Trump was responsible and recommended him
10: for prosecution.
11: That is NPR's Meg Anderson. Thank you, Meg. Thanks.
10: Anger in France has only grown since President Emmanuel Macron forced through his pension reform plan. That was on Monday. Today saw another nationwide round of strikes and demonstrations. What you're hearing there is a protest in Paris this afternoon. And joining us from Paris is reporter Lisa Bryant. And Lisa, tell me more about what happened in Paris and I guess across France today.
14: Well, this was the ninth major nationwide strike and protest. There were big demonstrations in the French capital and dozens of others elsewhere in the country. People I talked to hope they can keep up the momentum to force President Macron to repeal his unpopular pension reform. They were brandishing signs saying things like non-Macron and "Macron scornful of the republic. And many people don't buy Macron's argument that the system is going broke. I spoke to Jean-Francois Villain at the Paris protest. He was there even though he's retired. Let's listen. I don't believe it. Most people don't, he says. There's lots of money in France, but it's not in the hands of working people. The strikes are disrupting transportation, schools and oil refineries. Gas stations are running dry. Garbage is still rotting on Paris streets. Collectors are on rolling strikes. And like many protests, there's been some violence and clashes with police.
10: Yeah, I've been monitoring the pictures out of Paris, and it's just trash bags everywhere you look, it seems. Um, take us back to the beginning of this week. I mentioned um, that he Macron forced this through on Monday. What he wants to do is raise the retirement age from 62 to 64, but he didn't have the votes in Parliament, so so how did he do this?
14: So his government used a constitutional article, 49.3, to push the reform through anyway without a lower house vote, and many lawmakers and many French were furious. Earlier this week, Macron's government narrowly survived a no-confidence vote. Yesterday, Macron was on national TV defending his reform, but he doesn't seem to have convinced many French. In fact, a poll out today finds more than 60 percent of people think his remarks will only inflame things.
10: So he doesn't have public opinion on his
14: side. Where do things go from here? Where does France go from here? That's a really good question. Nobody really knows. Macron wants his reform to become law by the end of the year. The opposition wants to block it by any way possible, from appealing to the Constitutional Council, that's France's highest constitutional authority, to holding a referendum, to mass protests. These are really uncertain and rocky days in France.
10: Well, thank you for getting us up to speed on what is happening there. Reporter Lisa Bryant in Paris. Thanks.
11: Thanks. Nearly 20 years after the first bombs dropped on Baghdad, the Senate is on track to repeal the authorization for the use of military force that was used to justify the war in Iraq. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer earlier today.
6: Passing this AUMF is a necessary step for putting these bitter conflicts squarely behind us.
11: And peer political correspondent Susan Davis is covering this debate and joins us from Capitol Hill. Hey, Sue. Hey, Elsa. So let me say, U.S. combat operations against Iraq officially ended in 2011 under President Obama, right? Like what took Congress so long to take this step to formally end the war?
15: Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, he's a Democrat. He's been working on this repeal effort for years with Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana. And he said, essentially, there was disinterest from the Obama administration and outright opposition to it from the Trump administration to repeal the AUMF. But President Biden has indicated he supports it and he'll sign it if it reaches his desk. It has a supermajority of support in the Senate. So the political stars have finally aligned behind it. Hmm. I should note this legislation also appeals, the 1991 AUMF that authorized the Gulf War under former President George H.W. Bush. Uh Um, And I think it's important to understand that this action would have no impact on any ongoing military operations. It's a bit of a philosophical debate here. Congress is making a move to claw back its traditional constitutional war power authorities, which is a power that has sort of slowly shifted towards the executive branch over the past several decades, and especially in the post 9-11 era.
11: Well, on that note, I mean, isn't there another military force authorization that's still on the books. This one became law after September 11th, yeah. 2001, and it's been used by U.S. presidents to justify counterterrorism operations in, like, multiple countries. Is there any consideration in Congress to re-examine that authority?
15: In this debate, there have been two amendments to try and get at this question, but both were rejected. Rand Paul, a Republican from Kentucky, introduced an amendment that would sunset the 2001 AOMF in six months. That would give Congress time to sort of debate whether they wanted to up or rewrite it. Ninety, or excuse me, eighty-six senators voted against that. Mm. Another amendment by Republican Utah Senator Mike Lee would require all AUMFs to expire every two years so every new Congress would have to decide to whether they wanted to continue those war powers, also rejected by 76 senators. I think the bottom line I draw from that is, you know, that the Senate is still overwhelmingly comfortable with keeping that authority in place, not just for this president, but for any president. Right.
11: You mentioned the debate is largely philosophical. I'm curious, was there any reflection or regret among lawmakers about the impact the war in Iraq had on this country?
15: You know, some Somewhat, but it it has been striking to me that the tone of the debate has been very forward-looking and almost sort of positive. You know, Kane made the point that Iraq is no longer an adversary to the U.S. They are now, in his words, a strategic partner.
13: When the fighting is done and it's declared over, we can find paths forward to friendship and diplomacy and commerce and trade, cultural exchange. And that's a good thing about our country.
15: But Elsa, the literal costs of the Iraq War and all of the post-9-11 wars in Afghanistan and beyond have been really staggering, especially if you put it in the context of the debate we're having today about the debt and the deficit. Uh, Brown University runs something called the Cost of War Project, and they estimate 20 years of wars has cost about $8 trillion. About a quarter of that is Iraq alone. Um, Practically all of the spending was off book. It wasn't paid for by Congress. So a significant chunk of the $32 trillion debt we have today is those military and war costs.
11: That is NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Thank you so much, Sue.
15: You're welcome.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on Marketplace on WBUR, we speak with the owner of a car repair shop about the effect that the rollout of electric vehicles has had on those who work as car mechanics. That's on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. It's now 6.19.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolloran.com. It
0: was a turbulent day of trading on Wall Street, In the end stocks closed higher today. The Dow picked up about a quarter of a percent, S&P rose three-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained just about one percent. Gamblers in Massachusetts have fewer traditional options at the state's three casinos than they did prior to the pandemic. There used to be nearly 5,900 slot machines at Encore Boston Harbor, Plain Ridge, Park Casino, and MGM Springfield. That number has dropped by about 1,000. It's not just fewer slots. There are also now 58 fewer poker tables and 12 fewer table games. Massachusetts Gaming Commission released the data today. Sports betting became legal in Massachusetts this year, so casinos are using some of that space for sports betting kiosks. A Gaming Commission official says the pandemic caused a reset in market conditions for gambling have changed. This is WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville. Celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com.
0: In the forecast cloudy overnight tonight some uh, showers off and on strong winds about 43 degrees then tomorrow partly sunny temperatures in the 50s may not be able to see the sunset tonight but this note for the first time since last September it'll set at seven o'clock it's only a number on the clock but it's a good number this is WBUR.
9: WBUR supporters include the Box Center, presenting Arlo Guthrie, What's Left of Me. A conversation with Bob Santelli at the Box Center Schubert Theater, April 1st. Tickets at boxcenter.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa
11: Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today is the first day of Ramadan.
10: Normally it's a festive holiday, but for millions of people in southern Turkey and Syria, it will be bittersweet. They're still struggling following last month's earthquakes. More than 50,000 people died. Hundreds of thousands of homes were destroyed, thousands of people scattered in tent camps or other temporary housing. We're joined now by NPR's Fatma Tanis, who is in Gaziantep in southern Turkey. Hey, Fatma. Hi, Mary Louise. So I want to hear a little more about just what it looks like in these towns and cities that I know so many people fled after the earthquake in early February. Have they started coming back, started coming home?
18: They have. Um, It's been slow. Yesterday, for the first time, I saw people on the streets. They were getting their Ramadan shopping done and their last midday coffee fix in, since they won't be eating or drinking during the daytime for the next month. Uh, But many still aren't able to go back to their homes. Even here in Gaziantep, where there's been less damage than other cities, a lot of people are still in tents. Um today we felt four aftershocks here, and I was actually at a tent camp during one of those, and it was a chilling reminder of how traumatized people are here. You know, children started crying, people were flying out of their tents, you know, asking each other, Did you feel it? Is it over? Um, one of them was Esma Tezjan who was comforting her younger brother. Um, here she is.
20: She says they
18: are having a really hard time because that earthquake back in February was so violent, um, and they're still very afraid.
10: I can imagine. I, I just uh, the you know to feel an aftershock and not wonder and wonder is this another big one or what is it? Um, when you ask people about Ramadan and whether they will be celebrating it, observing it, what is even the right word to use this year?
18: Well, they are observing it, but it will be much more subdued. And you can, you know, tell by just being here. There are none of the usual decorations and lights. Um, you know, at least fourteen hundred mosques in the region have been damaged or destroyed. So. Prayers are being held in small tents outside. Even restaurants aren't doing their special if uh, special Ramadan menus here. Um, but local officials are trying to work to sort of lift people's spirits. At the tent camp I went to, um, I spoke to one guy who was organizing toys for children at a stall. Uh, his name is Zafar Yilmaz.
28: Theatre, <laughs> music.
18: He says, you know, there will be cinemas and theater shows for kids, as well as suites and music concerts to distract people from the psychological stress uh, and depression that they are in right now.
10: I know another stop that you made today, Fatma, was uh, at a community iftar. This is where people break their daily fast with what usually would be a large meal. Just take us there. Tell me what it was like.
18: It was really crowded. There were really long lines Um, and, you know, the Iftar tent is a traditional event that happens every year so that people in need can get food as well. Uh, But this year I heard from a lot of people that they came out because they're still, you know, grieving loved ones who died in the earthquake or they can't cook at home because of damage. Um, And they're seeking the comfort of being outside um, and breaking their fast with the community. And just briefly, what kind of help, what kind of aid will
10: earthquake survivors be getting?
18: A big part of Ramadan is, of course, about charity work, and, and people say this Ramadan is going to be much more about helping out than any of the other traditions. Uh, local officials, aid groups, restaurants are passing out food, so people don't have to worry about that. Um, and regular citizens are helping out as well. Uh, I spoke with one 75-year-old woman who was you know, carrying bags so full she could barely lift them. She was walking from tent to tent, passing out dates. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said she would be doing this, this all month, but there's just so many people who need help, that there's some are concerned about fatigue.
11: Yeah.
10: NPR's Spot Tanis reporting in southern Turkey. Thank you.
11: Thank you. For decades, American planners have cut neighborhoods in half. And now Richmond, Virginia, is exploring possible plans for a park to reconnect its most famous black neighborhood. Jad Khalil from VPM News reports.
13: A park gazebo in the Jackson Ward neighborhood is walking distance to history. America's first black bank was chartered here, an insurance company, too. Doug Wilder, America's first elected black governor, went to school here. But Cliff Chambliss and about 30 others weren't going to see those sites.
7: Uh, So the the goal for today, though, is is a prayer vigil.
13: It's fall, but it's still warm enough for cicadas to buzz. They eventually get drowned out by Interstate 95.
7: Homes were demolished, families were displaced, communities were broken up, businesses destroyed. And this is the cause.
13: In the 1950s, a highway split the neighborhood in half. Now, with a new grant from the U.S. Department of Transportation, Richmond is studying how a park built over the interstate could stitch together the neighborhood. Maritza Peachin is Richmond's deputy director for Equitable Development.
20: So one of the things that I have come to learn when I'm working in Jackson Ward or other communities that have had, like, pretty traumatic history is constantly talking about the history.
13: Step-by-step, residents built. Rosa Bowser developed night classes. Oliver Hill and civil rights lawyers built their practices. It was a wealthy community with everything they needed. Then the interstate destroyed a significant piece of it.
20: If you don't talk about the history, people assume that you don't know it or that you are kind of skirting it to the side.
13: Jackson Ward is still a centerpiece for Black entrepreneurship and culture. Successes, despite that destruction, haven't been evenly distributed, though. Today, there's twice as much unemployment north of the freeway, and incomes are a third of those south of it. So Pigeon says community skepticism of government investments is valid.
20: Because in the past, those investments have led to them being displaced.
13: In Richmond, 7,000 people were forced out. Kia Player's family was in 1957.
21: And then these are the four girls in front of the steps at uh, 904 Turpin Street.
13: Player has a photo of the little girls on their mother's lap. They're the first of her great-grandparents' 13 children.
21: After church, you know, everyone would come over from church and eat dinner. My grandmother sold fried chicken and butter rolls.
13: Player said the family's compensation wasn't even half of the house's value. Today, homes in Jackson Ward are rising in value fast.
21: It's not just about the land that was lost, but the communities that were broken up. There's no way to, like, give that back.
13: Experts say transit funding needs to be backed up with money for affordable housing. Catherine Howell is a professor of urban planning at Virginia Commonwealth University.
11: We know from
20: decades of research, frankly, uh, that transit projects uh, really tend to facilitate gentrification. Park projects facilitate gentrification.
13: At the march last fall, Janice Allen discussed another concern. She's the president of the historic Jackson Ward Neighborhood Association and said reconnecting doesn't equal repair for lost wealth and scattered communities.
2: So if we're going to make amends, it has to go a little bit further than just, quote, reconnect to Jackson. Thank you. All right. (laughs) Thank you.
13: 45 communities were awarded $185 million. Buffalo got money to start construction on an interstate cap, and Kalamazoo's grant is to build more walkable streets. Richmond's money is for more planning. In Jackson Ward, that means continuing to talk to his residents and those who were displaced. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Richmond.
10: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. In sports, Red Sox got back on the winning side today. They beat the Pirates 7-4 to in spring training. Tonight, the Bruins host Montreal at the Garden. Game time is 7 o'clock. The BU men's hockey team is progressing in the college hockey playoffs. Today, the Terriers won a first-round game over Western Michigan. BU will play in the next round Saturday against either Cornell or Denver. If you're used to watching TV how and when you want, you can now do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and Rewind Live Radio with the new WBR app, downloaded in the App Store today. It's now 630.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, mathworks.com.